And we're recording. All right. All right. Preet, um, thanks for joining us, man. How are you? I am doing good. Uh, busy. Uh, busy, 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 I guess enough. Uh, but I'm doing very good, uh, considering everything what's going on. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a very unique, let's say unique 2020. So yeah. Preet, um, I really want to thank you for, for joining us. Um, BGG and Brews kind of originated because our gym ended up having a... We started developing a tradition of generally on Saturdays, bringing a few beers to the mats, training hard, and then sitting around having a few beers and chit-chatting. So after a while, we realized a lot of these conversations we had were the kind of conversations that we thought maybe some other people would, would enjoy listening to. And that's kind of the origin and genesis of, of the podcast. And for a guy like you, I know I certainly would be probably sipping on a beer and then starting to ask you questions about defensive postures and and okay, how come the cross face doesn't work here? And and uh-huh. we'd probably be more hands-on. So that stuff I won't be able to get into as much with you because we're remote. We can certainly try at some point. But what I I listened to a lot of your podcasts that you've done recently. Um, and you've talked about teaching methodologies, you've talked about defensive postures. But one thing I haven't heard, which is really the first question I would have asked you anyway, and if I missed the podcast, I apologize, but is more about your origins. How did you get into jujitsu in the first place and what the scene was like in Estonia of all places with jujitsu when you started? So how did you get into jujitsu and what was uh, jujitsu like when you got started? Oh, uh, so uh, let's say um, it's a long story, but we have time. So I, I go even maybe back than you expect. But uh, so I played basketball since third grade till the ninth. Uh, I was pretty obsessed, you know. I always tell that that, that I, I didn't have much friends, and basketball was my escape. Uh, and I was a little bit overweight. I can, I probably right now also, but in a, in a school, you know, overweight a little bit. It's a little bit chubby. So, but I played basketball. Uh, I was. Uh, it's weird to say because it's. I don't think it's bragging, but I was Estonian's best player in uh, in my age group. Um, I was a lefty. And also, uh, so that was my escape or uh, probably, uh, you know, from bullying and all those things because people needed me. So they kind of left me alone in that sense. And then after, um, after um, main school, my mom didn't let me go to the high school because my mom is a teacher, uh, a German language teacher. And so she, she saw guys, you know, having a one notebook for all the classes. And then they didn't, you know, they didn't study. They just spent time there. And so she didn't want that for me. So she said, no, no high school. Uh, and she, she forced me in a good way, forced, you know, she pushed me or something uh, to go to technical school. That was five years. And by that time, you also had a high school education plus uh, like, a, like a job, you know, like a, you know what I mean? Like a college or something, but gives you like a, like a, like a something to, we can do something. Now, when you say technical school, just so we are understanding, is technical school would would that be a trade skill like like welding? No, I, I or... actually I was uh, I was studying telecommunication. Okay. So basically, like how the you know waves kind of go around the earth and how to fix stuff and everything else. It sounds like the origins of your scientific method. Yeah. So uh, I wasn't you know I, I got in I got in also without exams because I only have two C's on my high school diploma. 
or whatever certificate. And so I got in. Uh, I didn't know that what, this was it, what I wanted to do. I had no, you know, when you're 14, 15, they ask you what you do, what do you want to do for the rest of your life. It's like, how the fuck should I know, you know? And so I didn't have any any desires or, you know, some people want to go, oh, I would go to my, you know, my dad's, you know, kind of firm or something. I want to be this and that. I had no clue. Um, <laughs> I think it was a good thing, actually. But uh, but then there was an option to go there, and I took the option. And then for, uh, I didn't uh, I didn't do anything after that. My, my kind of the basketball stuff kind of disappeared. And then I think in a, in a second year in that school, I found out or or you know that my couple of my friends were doing aikido and the karate and kind of those things. And also I think my my late dad also also kind of wanted to make a man out of the son a little bit. I wasn't like a pushover, but uh, clearly I was not good with conflicts and physical conflicts and stuff. Uh, so uh, I guess he, they had more stories, me coming home and crying and everything else, you know. I don't remember those things. I was pretty much pretty young, probably. Uh, somebody Did you pretty, have any siblings? Uh, sister. Sister, okay. Yeah. So, 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 uh, four years older. And uh, uh, so my dad pushed it, and I think I was 17, and it was, I think, September, and then next to close to like let's say next uh, but pretty close uh, close enough for me to go there alone um uh, so to speak we had a karate school opening and um so i joined that and um kind of i have a i'm really obsessive about things uh so and um, again i don't they didn't have much social life overall uh so that that kind of again saved me in that sense that i just I basically, I think before that, when I when I joined the karate in September, I think uh, three months or four months, I I trained that I got a split. I trained for my split, so I was like kicking something in a, in my uh, in my apartment and everything else. So I I watched TVs like leg over the shoulder and just stretching all the time. So and uh, I had a, when I was eighteen and nineteen, I I pretty I almost had a split like a, not a middle split but front split. Like uh, and I could kick people in the head in a middle split and all those. So I was kind of obsessed about Van Damme and all the Bruce Lee's. So my mom always laughed when I when I was kicking stuff in my room and she passed the room. You know, I was always laughing. So I remember that. And uh, and then, I, but karate. Uh, I think it was two or three times. I think two times a week, and it wasn't enough. I had too much free time still. And uh, so my other my other friend in school was a, uh, you know friend or person I, I got along with. You know, I'm pretty picky with the word friend. Um, and and uh, so he was he was doing Aikido. So I had time and let's say my karate was Monday and Wednesday. So then I was, I think, Tuesday, Thursday, I went to Aikido. I did that, I think, four years. And it's, it's all messy, the history, because I don't know, uh, chronologically, I don't know when I did what, but I know that Aikido and karate was same time. And then um, a tragedy, tragedy, tragedy happened uh, that my coach died. Um, and then I was pretty good uh, back then, and they gave the club to me. Uh, so, so how old were you at the time when they gave you 20, the club? 22 or something like this. Wow. And this was uh, the karate club or the Aikido yeah. club, or were they both the same? No, karate club. Yeah, karate Aikido club. was okay. different. So I didn't run the business, but I was just, let's say, let's say main coach or something. 
And um, I guess it was uh, also strange. It, it wasn't pure karate in that sense. Our coach was influenced also by the soft styles and we were doing different kind of even Tai Chi exercises. And and I think uh, I think I you know participated even some Tai Chi seminars, I think, because I don't know when I did it. Uh, probably after I got the gym for myself, so to speak, that I know I also taught Aikido. Sorry, I taught uh, Tai Chi a couple of years. I was a Tai Chi instructor. And our coach actually was from US, uh, Scott Trodell. It was a Michu and Tai Chi style. Um, and he still visits Estonia. So so I did that. I run Tai Chi classes, actually, I think twice a week. And then in some point, um, because our coach also, we did some Wing Chun trapping stuff just for fun of it. You know, it was a Bruce Lee thing. So at some point, I think I took a, I think I took a, like a lead and uh, we all changed to Wing Chun I, because that was kind of like a new thing after karate, very violent, you know, thumbs to the eye, not kicks, chain punching uh, for a street, you know, and it was very visually attractive uh, and all the wooden dummies and everything else, you know, even still this day, you know, I, I don't have that, you know, that big of an apartment, but my dream is to just have a wooden dummy in my home. As a, like just like a like a like you know like a clothes hanger, and I still can do you know pum, pum, like those things and stuff you know paksal and and it's kind of if I if I touch the wooden dummy I almost giggle. This just emotions are like overwhelming. I think it's so cool. I I think the practical stuff and it's debatable, but just as a visual and a memory, what I can tap to when I touch the wooden dummy, there are, there are pretty good emotions there also. But uh, so winter. And um, so it's also like weird. We had a, I had a Finnish coach, then some other guy in Estonia got the German coach. The German coach pushed the Finnish coach out because they were same uh, same organization. So uh, Europe, actually Europe, Kernspath, the Leonting, Winchun. So they they signed another coach. And so I, I, in you know, long story short, I've changed my coaches in Winchun. I think four or five times. There's always some issues they didn't like. So I was always kind of rebel, so to speak, that I didn't like certain things and. And um, and uh, kind of had my own mind to, towards things, and then finally, uh, also that other Wing Chun guy in Estonia was a former sambo guy, so uh, he showed us uh, ground fighting at first. That I and I know remember I also remember that really he showed me the first time I liked it right away. It wasn't like you know some people get oh ground fighting it's so close. I was like oh cool let's do it, and so he did some back in the karate days already. He did some random, maybe one seminar or two seminars a, a year, maybe. So we, 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 you know, we learned to squeeze the body, the kidneys, you know, like a close guard. You stretch your legs and you, and uh, kind of weird stuff also. Um, and then I remember, remember at some point we did like a knee pads and a wooden floor. We rolled. It was very, you know, bone clicking. So I remember randomly those things. And finally, I think... Uh, we had a, like a small group doing already like grappling, grappling. And then we did still Wing Chun. And then in some point, uh, because the kitchen side, like a, a backstage or something, you know, we call it in Estonia kitchen side uh, that you don't see sometimes, you know. Because the kitchen side of Wing Chun was a pyramid scheme, basically. And then in some point, I couldn't lie, I couldn't lie to my students back then. Um, and that was, uh, it was 2005, uh, February. When I took my students together, I explained everything, what was going on behind the scenes, and then we just left. 
And then I think 99% people came with me. And we opened a jiu-jitsu club. And we had a wrestling and boxing. And officially, we opened 3D training 2005, 26th May or something. So now, up until this point, you said you just opened a jiu-jitsu club. You never mentioned jiu-jitsu at all up until this point. So when did you get exposed to the term jiu-jitsu and the fact it exists? I, you just I, mentioned I, you did ground fighting with a sambo fighter. Yeah, but sambo we, know, we knew it's jiu-jitsu and also like chronologically I have hard times, you know, hard times pointing it out because I know in some um, karate kind of camp, we had those summer camps. I know we all watched the VHS tape from Royce Crazy kicking everybody's ass. So we, ah, I've heard this. It's so crazy that there's so many stories that involve Hoist Gracie's UFC performance. Yeah, so we saw that. We were like, what the fuck? And uh, so we saw that. But I think it was 2004 or 2003 or something. And uh, uh, so there's a... No, it should be have fun to have the chronological history, but uh, we don't. Uh, so, uh, so, but there's... That's kind of like a sambo. Then I know jiu-jitsu. Then we started to, you know, probably look for stuff. All the bus route and, you know, kind of videos and every, all the access to those things. And uh, we visited Finland to compete and stuff. So they had already like a more organized things, like Alliance visiting there and some, you know, Fabio Jurgel and uh, Marcelo Garcia went there. So, but yeah, so 2005, jiu-jitsu. And uh, then... Was there any... Was there any- were there any other jiu-jitsu clubs in Estonia at this no, point? That was that our like, you know, proudly I was the first, yeah. So some people are debating that maybe a little bit that, you know, some let's say some Estonians were living abroad and maybe started also doing jiu-jitsu, but I think in Estonia we started the first. Uh, so I kind of because I was the coach, I was the, you know, the father figure kind of and uh, so so that's and then other Estonians joined and we had like 3 to 5 people um, in some school shooting range, uh, schools had shooting range in Soviet times. And, uh, so nobody cleaned those mats and I'm still don't know how I'm still alive, but, uh, but we rolled, we had fun. Uh, and also what pushed me towards, I think, uh, MMA and Jiu Jitsu was, um, we had, we had, uh, I think every month or every other month we had, uh, in Wing Chun, we had, uh, bloody Thursdays. That we put our gear up, masks, you know, MMA gloves, the one we can find, cup, uh, knee shields and stuff, you know, and then we fought on a wooden floor, actually. And then the guys that had grappling experience, even a little bit, uh, they had a, like an enormous chance of winning. And, uh, you know, if you what see... What intensity it, level would you say was, was happening? Uh, full when contact. Played, full contact. Yeah, on a wooden floor. Okay. So, so, I, I, so these, I, okay, I, so I, we would probably call those smokers over here. It's almost like internal fights, yeah. you know. And we were testing, and then all the Wing Chun cools things, you know, pum pum pum, you know, those things didn't work so well. And then grabbing somebody from the neck and kneeing them in a face and a body kind of worked. So and double leg worked and mount punching and everything. So that also kind of threw a, I'd call it like a wrench in the system, because everything that we can see, like wrestling, works right away and. They said Wing Chun, we have to train 10 years for it to work. So we were like, oh, that's not okay, I guess, you know. So that kind of started to also, you know, build a doubt that something's wrong. But I still like, you know, Wing Chun as a visual art. And um, and I don't mind if somebody does that art, if they know what they're doing, if they know what it's for, what it's not for. And if they cut all the bullshit, I don't mind that. You know, social experience, 
social interaction with people better than sitting on a couch, you know, why not? But if they're talking about fighting, then we can test and, you know, empirically, and then we can see what works. But so I, at this yeah. time, at this time, it sounds like you and your club are acquiring knowledge very ad hoc through videos, through the occasional seminar you attend, right? And then you guys are kind of bringing it back, whether it's from a video, whether from a yeah. book, whether from a seminar in Finland, bring it back and then experimenting with it yourselves and, and find yeah, your own. We had fans, uh, Estonian first black belt, Martin Aidma, that who lives in the Finland right now. So uh, he was a fan on Ruvina Sato and Kenki Suto and those Japanese submission wrestling or, you know, those fighters. So everybody was doing something, looking up, you know, the, the stuff they could get. Martin was the one actually did a, like a jumping triangle me first. I still remember he choked me. Not out, you know, but I thought I was like, what the hell was that? Oh, it's just a jumping triangle, you know? We, I remember those moments where it's just the first time you see something. What is that? And you have to tap to it. So, um, and then, you know, the, I know, I remember the moment when one of the guys, Estonian guys, Indrek, I think, showed us the triangle choke, you know? Nobody knew about it. I was like, wow, this is a triangle choke. And so those kind of fun, fun experiences. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of like a messy beginning a little bit. But uh, but kind of you can you can see the lineage going that Wing Chun and uh, grappling at the same time and some history and as soon as I myself I guess started to get more interested of fighting as fighting is I started to lean more towards you know MMA Jiu Jitsu and away from those kind of things that I did before because before I didn't have interest of fighting so to speak that I, I guess I sparred and with as a competition karate times also so. But uh, it wasn't that, and I was still, I think, believing certain things, and I I trusted authorities, uh, what they were, you know, telling us and stuff. So I couldn't. Uh, I think, you know, later I started to think myself more and all those things. So, 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 um, and I'm happy. I don't, uh, I don't bash my, you know, my history, so to speak. Sometimes I'm a little bit stressed, but overall, because of the history I have, I'm right now here. So sure. yeah, everything kind of led to this. That I I, I I I was Wing Chun, and then I in Wing Chun I met the Sambo guy that introduced us to groundwork, you know. And then you can go like it's a crazy luck, you know. I randomly kind of meet somebody like this, and now I'm you know, in 43 doing the, traveling the world and teaching, and I'm you know having a, a good you know good living. So it worked out, but it, it it is a strange beginning. But I also appreciate because. I've done all those traditional, let's say, a lot of the traditional arts, so I can argue with people, debate with people that why they're good, why they're not good. So usually people's arguments are, oh, you haven't done it yourself, you don't know. But I can, you know, I can, I can debate you why Aikido is good, why, you know, we could, we could stay away from that or something. So I think that knowledge is very useful when you're coaching. When I grew up in an era of, you know, Royce Crazy taking over the world. Sure. People had doubts. So at what point did SPG and or SPG come into the the equation because this is like my 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 co-host and then Chris is a is a big fan of Matt Thornton and he's not here cuz he has to he has obligations with his family and stuff but how did you get I guess formally belted up in jiu-jitsu and how did that relationship form uh, first guy, Indra Rayland, I think, went to UK, one of the seminars of Matt, when he visited late car Tanswell in Manchester, I think. And he came back with a blue belt. 
So and also we joined SPG because I was in I was in Tallinn. I think Martin Alba was also. I think back in the day, and Interac, uh, he's like a right now. He's a really smart person. So let's say he's philosophy professor or something these days. You know, he was kind of reading. He was getting. He was reading Matt's uh, blog. You know, philosophical blogs, and when Matt wrote stuff. And then there was a time that I know Finnish people asked me, like, what you want to do? You want to join the Alliance? You know, it was big in, you know, it was big in Finland, Helsinki, because they, they knew us. We were competing there and stuff, you know. Uh, guys from the woods, you know, I would say they called us a little bit like random people came. And we actually did pretty good in the competitions. Um, it's just without any, of, uh, you know, formal coaches and stuff. Um, and uh, I think Indrek, uh, Indrek, explained us the aliveness and all those things that Matt was talking about. And uh, for us, uh, the reasoning was that in a way, it sounds bad to say it, kinda, we were against the Brazilian way, you know, like a, a, the SPG was offering more kind of more scientific approach, why, how to coach, how to drill, you know, uh, still aliveness one-on-one block spot that Matt has. Uh, there's an article about drilling that literally says, you know, the, the headline is about drilling. Still one of the best articles there is. And this is this was very long time from like my Bible that I read many times and every year I started to understand it better. So and he give, gave us the, you know, like a formula, why to teach, how to teach, what is important. And not just, you know, 30 minute condition, warm up, three techniques and then your role method that usually, you know, um, it's, it's said that, you know, this is very traditional. So so that was main reason. And I kind of trusted Indrek. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to separate the team. And we still were, you know, a small country. So it was another city, but we were still friends. And I, 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 did, I didn't have a guts to go my own way back then. Because I trusted him. And then he, he was, uh, yeah, so he went, I guess, in some point to, have a seminar, and then he came back with blue belt, and then we were like, "Oh shit, we're not," you know. Actually, somebody's a blue belt. He was a god back then, you know. So, and uh, then we started to go to seminars because I think I was Estonian first purple belt. I think uh, Martin was Estonian first black belt, uh, and uh, and then then what else? Uh, so yeah, so then I guess the coming going to Manchester. And even some point I went to Portland to live. I think it was um, maybe 10 years ago already. Or I went to, for three months to Portland. I met my very good friend, Peter Bogosian, actually. You know, the, the atheist philosopher. And I, I lived in, 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 with, no, in his house three months. We got along super, super well. A very, very awesome person. And I stayed in States, kind of, and I think... I didn't get any belt there. I got my two stripes or something there. Brown belt I got in San Francisco, I think, Berkeley. Uh, and black belt I got in Portland also, 2012. So, Was there I, any evaluation process, like a formal testing rather, no. for you to get belted? It was just... yeah, We usually have Ironman. Okay. Yeah, so you know the Ironman, what, what SPG does? Uh, is this is this where they start with the white belt and work their way yeah, up yeah, to the yeah. blue, purple, brown, and black? Yeah. So it was just a rolling session. I know from my brown belt in Berkeley, uh, I had to I had to roll with James Davis, very stocky, stocky guy, and I think he was already brown belt. So it was a no gi match, and I probably rolled with him. I know I rolled with Matt before, 
So he was checking something out, and then we had a like a really long ruling match, like a sparring match in front of the coaches with uh, with uh, James Davis. He's not in SPG anymore, so uh, and that that was enough. And then then people, I think, I got my brown belt after that. I also had my Ironman in that camp, so it was a very grueling camp. And uh, for my black belt, I usually visited uh, like many years in a row. I visited America for two or three months. Uh, at times, and then 2007, yeah, 2012, November, January. No, I think it was November or December. Sorry, and then you know uh, it was Ironman for me for a black belt. I actually yeah, had a bad, at that time rib injury, so it's in some point I had to suck it up, and then finally Matt said like, "Don't do any more knee and bellies on him." So I just <laughs> like, previous day I got my rib injury. Somebody did it, so I had to go like 40 people like really hard. Uh, you know enough. With a rib injury, so it was a it was a mental challenge. <laughs> now, these trips to the United States were these of your own volition, like not your own volition, but of your own. Yeah, I guess of your own volition, like you you, you made the decision, like I want to go there, or was Matt giving you direction to say, hey, you should no, you know, try think, to come these I, times. I think uh, I guess he would he would have said something like, but it's mostly was my escape that um, I escaped and I enjoyed that I went away. And I guess also in a time, uh, in that way, I could, I could ease the money pressure in my club. So I, I was just other people were coaching, other people were getting money, and I was staying away. I was uh, you know doing other things. So and I and I joined. I also enjoyed the traveling definitely, but it was also I think getting away in that sense. I also lived in Sweden in many many summers in a row. In a way, because always the club were having a hard time in summers, so money-wise, I left and uh, and I, I I lived and gave classes in Sweden many times uh, with my uh, to, uh, at my friend's place in Norrköping. So uh, Daniel Backfeld. So, but it's interesting you asked that because I cannot give you a straight answer because I think I went myself because I could go there, and I do I know I had also replacements for that time when I went. So, so it wasn't at, like, at your academy, like yeah, you were yeah, able to have yeah. someone teach in your yeah, absence. Yeah, yeah. So, and also we didn't have, uh, I never had before this new gym. I never had uh, my own kind of 24 seven gym. We always rented times from judo guys and those kind of things. So, and I know somebody definitely replaced me and uh, you know, and so everything in that sense was good, but I was yeah traveling pretty much regularly in many, many four or five years in a row uh, to always Portland. And then Travis Davison moved to Montana, so I was there. Went to Steve Whittier place in East Coast, so I was a little bit traveling around. Went to Niagara, uh, so uh, so I was, you know, in a way all over Edmonton and Canada and everything. So that's interesting. You you went to some places in the United States that most uh, non-Americans wouldn't necessarily visit first. You yeah. know, the it's not the. Not that Montana is not the classic first destination yeah. for. <laughs> but I, guess I, I, I went. Uh, I went to the different gyms that offered me opportunities. Mm-hmm. So uh, in other other cities, maybe I didn't know people so much. So I, I definitely I, I know I've been in Berkeley also in some point, uh, also for seminar, but just first visiting them. And so I, I used the, their SPG networking as getting myself around and. And uh, sharing my ideas, like raw ideas back then, when I, what I had about things. So, so I, I'm also, you know, appreciate that opportunity definitely. Yeah. Well. Th- okay. So this is <laughs> th- that was that was very fascinating. And 
I have a, a number of questions that I want to, we'll sure. see how many we get through. Cause I have a feeling, you know, th- these aren't just one word, one answer, one word answer kind of questions, but the first shouldn't be a, uh, take too long. I would think, cause I think you already kind of touched on it in, uh, you describing kind of your origins and, and that's this, what made you bring scientific methodology, empirical evidence or wanting to have empirical evidence and applying scientific methodology to jujitsu and using that to challenge, you know, preconceived notions when it, whether it comes to coaching uh, methodologies, which is its own kind of topic, or just, you know, what techniques work and what don't, what do you think, uh, what do you, what do you think caused you to, to connect the two and say, I need to apply scientific method to jujitsu? It's, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm going to turn it around a bit. Because um, I don't think the, the, the reason for scientific evidence and empirical evidence came first. I just, it's the way I am. And, uh, and then people have said, oh, you're so science-based. And you, some people have said, you should have, definitely you have an engineering background and stuff. I was like, no. I've, I've, you know, I'm self-taught. I've read some books. Probably I should read more books, but, you know, I'm lazy also. I, I read enough books, I guess. But uh, then people have, um, have, how to say, make sense of me, like, oh, you're scientific and you look for evidence. And you can say for me, I don't know, it comes natural and I don't define myself this way, but they, it helps me to make sense of what I do because uh, um, how else are you going to do it, you know? And if you're alone, you know, it's a sad story in a way that if you're alone in Estonia, you know, and so you have nobody to turn to in that sense. You're all the coaches are abroad, you know, Ireland, England, and America. What do you do? You have to figure stuff out on your own. And then it's easy. It's easier to figure stuff out for yourself because you can do whatever you want, you know, like a, find your solution, reaction-based, whatever. But it's crazy hard to crazy hard to teach others because if you don't have a system or understanding or everything else, Teaching your game to others and all those things, it's very, very hard if you don't have a structure. So, and uh, recently I think I've seen, you know, my, I think my, the, I don't know, my mind has exploded or then I see different things everywhere and certain visual rules that I have, you know, the, all the defensive things are giving me like a, like, how to say, like a framework. It, uh, the structure, I also would say like I'm a visual person uh, and those structures are giving me confidence so to speak, that uh, if I do this and now, you know, win or lose, if I win, t- if I lose too much, let's change the structure. And I have a weird, I don't know actually what it's based, but I have a weird belief that Jiu-Jitsu is perfect. And I also have, you know, the authority quote that uh, Ricks and Gracie said, that like, you know, Jiu-Jitsu is perfect, it's people that makes mistakes. But I really, I take it literally because there is perfection Let's say if you see certain moves, let's say, let's say even like a simple one, triangle choke, it is perfect. You know, the, the way their body goes around my body and it just, everything clicks. It's a perfect choke. You understand? So like physically we're meant to fit with each other. And uh, I'm looking for that perfection in that sense everywhere uh, because Jitsu is so wide. I cannot, you know, I, I know that in passing and everything in leg drag situations and all those things. I'm also looking for perfection. Like, I know that people are moving and then it creates a chaos. 
but I think ideally we can move each other always perfectly clicked, you know, like always attached to each other perfectly. And that's what I have when I talk about uh, escaping and everything, like a Hawking or a running man. Uh, it's just the way it works, I, I see perf perfection in it. That the way it's just, it's hard to put it in words. And then I know the human factor, the sport factor kicks in that makes it more messy. But as a technique wise, uh, I'm, I'm really drawn to the perfection and I'm a, I'm a firm believer that it's there. And uh, many people I know, I, that's why it's not, a lot of people haven't done what I do, all the Hawkings and everything, because they don't believe it exists. And they are settling for the lesser version of this, like a turtle, you know, because they don't fix turtle. For me, it was like, this is, doesn't make any sense. You know, tell us why, why nobody can challenge tell us as a back taking, you know, uh, like a competition. And then people are, you know, people doing elbows on a mat and all other shit. They don't go like, oh, maybe there's a better version, you know, so because many people, I, I just sometimes drives me nuts, actually, because we see that turtle doesn't work the way it's taught. Because if you put your elbows on a mat, you expose yourself to so much shit that no wonder that people don't like turtle. Because hooks, guillotines, darces, marces, barces, larces, everything is there. But then why we're doing this? The belief is, I, I have a belief that there's something better. And now I know there is because there's a head on a mat turtle, elbows out and all those things. And everything is better. And um, I'm happy I had that blind belief to go after things. And those, what I found first, helped me to realize it's everywhere. So now we have a turtle, upright turtle, pandas, hawkings, baby bridges, you know, running mans. And now we're like, oh, shit, there's so many of those things. And, uh, and uh, my point is kind of to posturize jiu-jitsu for myself. Because that is the... If I say only way, maybe I'm over-exaggerating a bit, but let's say right now, it is the only way it makes sense to me. Because then I can do test, observe, lose, change the structure to another test. But if it's just random things, it's super hard for me to learn, and I'm getting very frustrated when, I'm, when I don't know what to do or why I'm losing. And it drives me nuts. And so to make sense of it, I've built those systems for me, mostly. And, um, and always improving them. And now, uh, 2020, we have, you know, very weirdly effective defensive system that people have to accept is there. So, so you know, I'm not done yet. They also, maybe we change something in the future. So, I don't know. It was a long-winded answer, but maybe you got something out of it. No, and it sounds like it, it all stemmed from, and this is something I've heard in your previous conversations with on other podcasts and, and also listening to the seminars you give, that the absence of having an authority figure to appeal to, which in a lot of situations, you know, what would a guy like me do? I'd go ask my coach or yeah. I could appeal to a higher belt and they would just tell me, yeah, you do this. And there's really, oftentimes there's a little opportunity to ask why, because if you ask why, they'll be like, well, my, my coach told me that. And you end up going up yeah. this hierarchy of like, the, my coach told me to do, and everyone just takes takes it at face value and doesn't question it. And then you finally go back long enough and maybe there's some odd sort of reason. I think Sonny was talking about this in, in your conversation on the Sonny Brown breakdown where yeah. it's sort of like, why do we do this? And it's some, uh, some esoteric reason, but then every, it got passed down and, and now people think it's gospel. So I, uh, yeah. I think it makes sense exactly why you evolved the characteristics of 
you know, how am I going to get better? Well, the only way I think I can get better that I know is, I think, valid is to be scientific in my approach and to test things out. And if they don't work, then I need to adjust. So it's like a result of your environment. Yeah, I, I guess it also it helps. I'm Estonian. Uh, I think we are also very questioning people. With uh, we're not religious, like mo- Estonia is one of the most atheistic countries in the world. So you know, we're just always you know doubting stuff. And I guess also those you know Rich and Feynman videos and stuff they gave me because I'm not you know university educated, so to speak. That I'm not an engineer and and but the, those kind of rules that Feynman says you know look to reality. Do experiment. If the experiment is not correlated with the reality, experiment is wrong. You know, so I, I got certain like a base rules to to understand to make sense of it, uh, and uh, I've gathered certain rules for me. And the crazy one that I can't answer is like why I, I b- believe blindly because let's say with that, that Eric Eric Linden guy that helped me to figure out the turtle, he was the closest we had to tell us, so to speak. And I know many people have rolled with him and they didn't, uh, they weren't inspired to figure him out because, because uh, they didn't see something. I was right away like, well, what the hell, you know, why you have so hard time? I, why, I, why I have so hard time uh, taking her back? And I was very intrigued and it literally took us two and a half years, not like everyday thinking, but just uh, to figure him out. But I don't know why I right away saw, because I know some people also took his back. And uh, I know they were like, oh, yeah, nothing, you know, there's nothing, so to speak. But I saw something, and that's because of that guy, we, we've, you know, we figured out what TELUS does. It helped us to figure out. So certain things, uh, I would usually like to call it, I get punched in the face by certain things. And it really poof, go like, oh, what the hell was that? And it starts to bug me. And I, even if people lose, let's say, what happens to people, one case maybe you can relate to is... Uh, you saw the uh, Robbie Lawler and Colby Covington match. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the first round I'm usually talking about, the first round when Colby couldn't hit, uh, you know, Robbie hard, and uh, Robbie was doing like, a, you know, pandas, and he was sit, sitting next to a wall, kind of easily protecting himself from Colby, you know? And uh, many people were like, oh, they, they, many people didn't see what I saw. Even commentators were like, oh, he's in danger. And uh, I pointed it out in a Facebook to people that, Guys, did you see what, what what he was doing? Because if Colby would hit him in a face hard, he would do that, you know. But he couldn't. And people were like, "What, what happened? What what round are you talking about?" I was like, "Go watch the first round." And uh, but then uh, many people, even seeing that again, said, "Oh, but he lost." I was like, "Yeah, but you know, he survived." And so, so those kind of and some people said, "Oh." Oh, this was, you know, intentional actually behavior that he was choosing to do that as a defensive strategy, and uh, like a majority of people didn't didn't see it. But so I see something. Uh, of course, I do what I do, and then you know, Robbie could do it in a highest level of our sport. But those kind of things I've seen randomly in my jiu-jitsu career that people neglect, and I get stuck to. I was like, oh, it's something there we have to study. And, uh, and I go to the rabbit hole and then mostly I, it's a very lonesome road because nobody believes what I believe. And then I end up figuring stuff out and then they're, oh, yeah, yeah, we thought also, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. So uh, my history is full of those things that we know why with the stuff I'm usually pointing out is uh, the beginning of the grilled chicken open guard, you know, the, the, the name I use. 
is a Braulio Estima and Galvao match, super match, you know, 2011, I think, or 13, 13 maybe. Braulio Estima kept Andre Galvao away with that position, with the grilled chicken structure, you know, the legs and stuff. And that was like, you know, Galvao, no, compares, compared to me, knows everything about Jiu-Jitsu. And he couldn't approach that guard, you know, in that sense, that challenge Braulio. I was like, what the hell is that structure? Why is nobody talking about it? And so I got stuck in there, and that's why we have open guard. And I have really, you know, compared to what I hear people have, and I have easier time explaining all that complexity with that structure. So, uh, and uh, also people said, oh, but Braulio lost the match. Who the, who the fuck cares? Didn't you see what he did? You know, how easy it was to keep Galvao away, you know, physical, very knowledgeable grappler. And uh, so I, I see certain things and and then it was like, yeah, it took us a couple of years to make sense of it because we started to like, exp- you know, play it with this and then all the problems came out and we fixed it. But my history, like last 12 years or something is full of those things that that kind of led me to those moments. And uh, and many people didn't see what I saw, and I have no clue why I why I got hit in the face and why I went after those things. And so mm-hmm. so yeah, it's a mystery for me also. So one of the the bigger topics I want to touch on here, if you thought we didn't touch on any big topics yet, this is the one that I was very curious to to ask you, and I, I had to write it down because there's some layers to it. But you'll immediately get the the context because the question is simple. So in your opinion, Preet, uh, how should brand new people be taught jujitsu? Oh shit. How? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) How does one reduce the initial complexity for them? What are the core techniques and concepts you would first share with new students and why? Uh, I think I I would answer that uh, question fully on my deathbed. (laughs) <laughs> so but uh, that what you asked is something that i'm after this is uh, th- this is my uh, the road i'm on right at the moment to answer that question uh, i can answer that question partially already right now i guess but i'm definitely not done because i'm trying to figure it out so so i, I appreciate also when people you know joining my journey and already interested because the evidence towards what I do is enormous, you know, that it works. Uh, but so what I, let's say just overall, I, I, if I say I hate traditions, you have to take it in a right way. I think traditions are very dangerous uh, and they help us to get stuck in time. So, and uh, all the, the rituals we do, they have to have a meaning and I don't mind rituals if they serve a purpose. So, because I'm, let's say, this is a very broad topic, but I think it helps to beginners also. Overall, stop calling people professors and all those, you know, whatever. We are not different than anybody else. And I have, you know, engineers and professors in my class. I don't call them engineers and professors. So stop, like, idolizing jiu-jitsu as a life coaching, you know, like a platform. So, like, people come in, they are there to learn jiu-jitsu. I guess it helps. Uh, as a re- as a also like an environment, I think I have to say this. It's always on my mind the professor thing. Uh, but overall, also we we should start. We should stop the demonizing. You know, the showing the back thing. Um, mm-hmm. We because all my life I've heard that uh, basically before the black belt or you know 
um, that you know turtle is a transitional position and don't stay there and everything that but this argument is so flawed that you know everything is transitional position as a mount bottom also you don't want people to mount you and punch you in the face you escape during transitions so it's the argument is does it's like broken uh, but just as a uh, for beginners how do you start is like um, let's say the way I, I teach beginners at the moment, not a perfect way, but the way we start in our club is we don't let them roll three months because we have to weed out the idiots that are there to hurt and are, are there the health hazards and are not meant to be there. It's very, you know, I use my not first language to express that, but, but we have had injuries when we started to like roll people, make, you know, allow people to roll on the first day. There's always some physical guy that takes it all seriously and then hurts everybody else. Those hurts those nice people that come, you know, come to the class. And there's some physical guys. So uh, mainly our uh, beginners course is, I think, half or a little bit over the half is about submissions. So we start actually teaching people the, those UFC submissions that they understand because they don't understand half guard passing. There's no context for that. But we teach them how to be safe. By showing them submissions that, that they can expect. That means darses, arm bars, guillotines, uh, knee bar, ankle lock, everything. And I think over, we have a three months uh, uh, like a beginner's course, I think half or a little bit over the half are submissions. Because uh, they do isolation. Now, just one, <clears throat> sorry, yeah. one thing, just to interrupt. So you said beginner course, just a, just a couple clarification, then, I, then you can continue. The beginner course is, uh, that's, exclusively for the new students so yeah. they are in their own sandbox yeah i the the terrible terrible thing to do for beginners is to accept them to main group right away that's, sure that's one of the worst things you can do okay and then in terms of is it well this is this is later because we're trying and i'm thinking curriculum and how much time yeah. do you spend on a topic yeah. so yeah. i'll get you back to it so you're teaching you say it's about six months for the new students they're with them they're no, three months do you have them warm up with the other class or is it no. their own class it's uh three months actually not the six months so beginners oh, sorry, course is months. uh three months they have like maybe eight to ten minute warm-up okay uh, uh just the movement patterns and stuff it's also maybe warm-up is connected to the class they're there i think they're doing i don't teach beginners but uh, they do in every class a different section of the warm-up that uh, is necessary in a more higher groups. So if let's say if you have a Kimura class, we concentrate more on Kimura warm-ups, like a shoulder stuff and shoulder griddle and everything. Sure. Because we have to explain them how to do everything so it takes time, so we don't do a full warm-up. Okay. And the class is one hour, but they do isolation training, iso progressive resistance, you know, and everything else. So they get a sense of finishing things and i teach uh, we i guess we teach backwards so you teach arm bar finishing and then you move closer to the mount and then you know you use backwards methodology not forward uh, that's the very, very big difference that's i should say like more clubs should do it in the world and it's not even debatable i think um and uh so i teach them submissions and then after three months they we had uh, like four stages we had the beginners base, main, and advanced. But now after Corona, we have a beginner's fundamental group and then advanced. But after three months, they start to roll. And they, they now they know the main submissions, how to be safe, how to tap, and then they start to build context. So your, your question is hard to answer because it's like, a, you know, it's a group class. 
if I would teach somebody individually, probably there's a little bit of a different order and stuff, you know, um, because I would maybe start from even defensive stuff and do, you know, build the game bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. But with a group class, we, we, we do the way I, I explained. And then they start to have a, like a, you know, they have a, in fundamentals, maybe year curriculum, something, and we try to go over all the positions. And all the positions, like, you know, back escapes and stuff, but they're based on certain structures. So, so it is actually a really hard question to answer because if it sounds really logical that it should have a, like a straight answer. But what comes to escapes example that we then, when we're teaching escapes, I will use my, my knowledge about what I know about escapes and, and then go to Baby Ridge escape, go to Hawking escape. And if you get stuck, you know, giving up underhooks and crossface, and th then how do you escape then? But we, mo the point is to not make them stuck in a side control, you know? The, it's very bad when they know only escape they know is from underhook and crossface position. Uh, that's, I think it's just terrible for beginners. And uh, I know people are answering, oh, but they end up there. But we can actually train them that they will not end up there against their own kind. Because we have underhook drills and all those things we can play. That, that actually getting underhooks and seatbelts are harder. So it's just people don't know yet, so to speak. And uh, Well, and, and I agree with you because <clears throat> you, you've made the point in, in some of your seminars that we inadvertently, we being, let's say, the jiu-jitsu community in general, have a, have a, a bad habit of inadvertently implicitly um, teaching bad habits to new students yeah. because if you're teaching it let's say an offensive drill let's say half guard passing or side control you immediately put the person on bottom in the worst possible position and don't tell them that this is the worst possible position yeah. so they just start to think implicitly like if i'm on bottom both my shoulders are on the mat it's like well no actually that's the last thing you want like they've done all this hard work to put you in this position and now they're going to try to attempt to pass, let's say, or now they're going to yeah. attempt to improve their position, where in so, fact yeah. they should never be allowed to. Yeah, to it should be a, it position. should be a fight that that uh, in other cases also, you know, like I usually in my YouTube I've made those examples that that in mount we're better, you know, in mount we always teach people to have the frame on a hip, you know, example, is it the right or wrong thing to do, whatever, but in mount bottom we don't do teach mount bottom. We don't start the top guy having a crossface underhook and already squashing us, you know. So why we're letting this happen in the side control, so to speak, that in mount and also when we do, let's say, in a guard, guard top, we don't we don't teach people like, oh, you're in right now already in arm drag situation and now open the legs. It's too deep already, you know. We teach beginners to stay away from everything to avoid all the, you know, that whatever the arm position use in a close guard. To avoid everything and to get the you know guard open so in guard we act like it's like a early is the best way but then in side control bottom we put them in under who cross the situation and then we we say like oh but they end up there because they end up there because we teach that they would end up also in a guard in arm drag position when we teach only in opening legs from the arm drag position so so uh, sometimes i get so annoyed by people there they're justifying certain traditions and they don't have a better answer than they're just repeating what somebody else said. And um, so that's why I'm also like, you know, kind of sometimes aggressive by that, but because I'm tired of, I've tired a little bit about this mindset of people that all we do, how we're told. And um, so, you know, you know, it's not only black and white, but, but that's why, no, that's why 
it is hard paradigm shift what I do because I still meet those things, you know, that people doing frames and people doing this and that, and they're not exposing their back. And we have evidence. We have goddamn Eduardo tell us, you know. So, so I know people say it's the, you know, oh, it's a, like a one guy only. But if one guy tr- spars with dozens of good guys, Keenan, uh, Saulo Ribeiro, and whatever, and they cannot take his back. So not only one guy can take his back, but dozens of people. So why we're neglecting that evidence and saying it's just the one guy, you know, and then people say, oh, he's losing fights. He's not winning fights. Did you saw he defended a good back takes from Keenan? Why would you go, oh, he lost? Who cares? And uh, so I find, you know, we're back to the, some other rant, but, uh, but, 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 so I'm also, I having a hard time actually, you know, answering your question because, because I'm trying with my stuff, I'm trying to answer that better because clearly I would teach beginners my way of doing side control bottom, my way of doing the upright turtles and turtles and pandas. We have goddamn four stripe white belts that we have very hard time like dominating in a gym as purples and black belts. Like this is like very, very strange that finally, yes, they lose finally, but goddamn, we have to work on them, like get those underhooks. Get them flat. Get those seat belts. It's a fight. And if I've done jiu-jitsu like 15 to 20 years, it shouldn't be I have a hard time with white belts, you know? But people like, uh, you know... Also well, my- the level of instruction has gone up over yeah. the time. So, then and defensively, they're smart. They're, defensively, they're smart. Of course, they lose, but then it's easy to correct them also. So definitely, I can answer your question better what comes to defensive side of jiu-jitsu. How do back escape, you know? Uh, how do play side control or turtle and uh, the hard part is to build it in a curriculum in that sense that you know i don't have in a beginner's course or in a in some mid mid group i don't have time to spend two months on a turtle you know but i don't think it it has to be that way that i can really teach like a good turtle in two classes like really make them super annoying and just give them a broad you know ideas elbows and everything head and pummeling and hooks out and stuff i can do it in two classes give me like one hour each class and i can make them good for beginners and then after that it's easy to guide them you know what they did wrong why i got seat belt pummel the elbows out i can guide them i can add to it later but as a defensive structure it's it's easy to get what's hard about is techniques like how do you escape from you know let's say from hawking what is the stiff arm what is the you know the underhook so there is kind of lies the problem because they take time because you need context because it comes with counters, you know? So, so I still also struggle, but I can already feel that I can answer that, uh, that basic problem better. And I can, what I see also in my case, and I can make beginners enjoy more the starting years of jiu-jitsu because they don't get smashed. They don't get like uh, left and right submitted without them knowing why it happened. I, I get messages from uh, like beginners who have done it like three to four months and they're saying like blue belts can't catch me. Uh, it's not an ego thing also because I'm just not giving them underhooks. I'm just relentlessly, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I would escape, but I'm not giving them underhooks, you know, and their blue belts, their bodies, they have a super hard time catching them. They're going to lose eventually, you know, but they're like, oh, I can survive. I can play this game. So I get like, like not every day, but I get those messages. So, and so my, I give you the open-ended uh, answer because I'm trying to answer the question and I'm partly answering the question with my things. The harder part in defensive matter, the harder part is to build it in a structure. 
because the bad thing is most people do not attend most classes. You know, they're skipping classes. Actually, <laughs> yeah. so I actually have a, I added like a, my follow, well, not my follow-up, but the next part of this involves curriculum to a degree. I did have one quick question though. Go Regarding that three-month intro for brand new students, I was surprised to the, how heavy it was in the submissions. I mean, I definitely could envision triangle, uh, rear naked strangle, uh, Kimura's arm bars, but to go to even doing Doris's and stuff is interesting. Now, you said 50% of, of your time is spent on submissions. Yes. And I can see the appeal because, like you said, they see it in the UFC. It's fun. It's engaging. Yeah. You want to engage people. Are you teaching any sort of positional hierarchy? Like this is close guard, this is half guard, this is side control, this is mount, this is back mount, or or you're not? Like what is the, I guess my question is what, are you teaching a positional hierarchy? And also what is the other 50% dedicated to? I would imagine movements as part of that to uh, some degree. So yeah, submission is like a, why I choose submission is the safeness issue, but it's the context to understand. They have no reference why half guard passing. What the fuck is a half guard? You know why they're squeezing mm -hmm. your leg? What is the mm -hmm. you know pluses and minuses? So, um, but but the trick is I give you them the end of the spear, and then we start to build the context. You understand? Mm -hmm. And so if your armbar works, you know, then you go like let them close the arm, you know, armbar them. Then go to like you know like S mount or side mount, whatever they call it, you know, in mount. Then fall back from there. Then, sure. you know, get them to the side. So you're building a context all the time if they're better. You know, first, other way, if you start from that S-mount thing to cut to the armor, it's a very big road. So without, the, you know, without having a good time and uh, a lot of time, it's hard. And also we do it this way that every class is independent from each other. So people can jump into that cycle in every class. It's not like we're going to take people in the first September and they're going to, you know, leave in, you know, end of the November. So it's every class is independent. So for beginners, it's the most convenient. They can join any class they want and start their three-month cycle from there. Uh, so do you, do you ever spend two consecutive days on the no, same topic? No. So it, doesn't this conflict with your feeling that I've, – I've, I've heard you see the argument like, you know, I'm a black belt. I challenge anyone to learn – you know, 15 techniques in a, you know, yes. the classic, in, in the context of a classic class, right? The classic class that got, you do your 20 minute warm up, then you do your yeah. three different techniques, then you roll and then tomorrow you do something else. And now you've learned, you know, a bunch of techniques in a short period of time and none are really going to be assimilated to your game. So how do you reconcile that, which I agree with, with what you just said here? But I, when I, always, when I talk about this technique stuff, I always said in a beginner, in, in a beginning, it's different. You know, you're learning context. After the beginner's course is a little bit different, and I'm still I I I I know what I said, and I'm still trying to find the balance point how to teach less myself, and how to you know make uh, I will also answer the question differently. I think we jumped off here. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk. Let's let's talk about when people are skipping classes. Let's say in some other point, and what what why the way I teach could be a better answer to the overall um, answer, like how to teach. So in beginners, it depends all about objective. What is the objective of three months? Objective is to, you know, make them have fun. Uh, they learn something. They learn to be a good partner. They learn to win and lose because somebody is a loser. Somebody is a winner because the sparring is off. You know, somebody is ending up in armbar and I'm going to finish. I learn to tap. Yeah. If you let them spar, they don't tap. If you let them do like a loser and winning drills, 
there's no issues there. People don't get injured mostly. Um, and then the preparedness is just to make them also follow rules and uh, weed out the people that are not supposed to be there. And also maybe also influence people that, uh, that have different ideas of training, make them uh, in a way that they can follow rules and they become better training partners. So that is the objective of this. So later, if they come to the other group, they're ready to tap. And that now they're starting to learn jujitsu and context and sparring and everything else. So, and it's still, I'm still struggling with that myself because it is a, like a trick question when I say that, you know, that every, every class two techniques. So what we're trying to do is the, the way the class is structured later, it's very, very drilling heavy. So usually my answer is that, that if I teach something that, you know, 10 minutes warm up, to, let's say 20 minutes technique section, half an hour training, uh, drilling, sorry, and then half an hour on sparring with a specific mindset of trying to pull off those techniques we did in a class. So the retention could be better, you know. And then we have also like we, we maybe sometimes we do two, three weeks techniques and then we have a one week when we just drill the stuff we just did. Uh, usually the, the, after three weeks, we usually do a one week just drilling, not learning anything new, just drilling the old stuff. Sometimes even after two weeks, we have a drilling week. Just ease the mind, don't learn stuff, just get over what we did, repeat it again, you know, in different situation, and then we go on. So we, we let them kind of like a defuse a little bit because uh, it gets, you know, it, it will get too much. So So that's the struggle I have also. And I'm trying to solve the problem with a different mentality of coaching, with a lot of drilling, with a feedback, a lot of resistance drilling, less techniques in a class. Sometimes I just see maybe one or two things, even little things, and then we just drill. So the retention would be better because uh, so, and uh, sometimes I'm struggling with that technique wise, because if you will go to leg lock, they need to know a lot of things, you know? So then it's more about techniques, but then we have to drill it. We have to go back. We have to reset the mindset. Have a let's say we did two months leg locks, then we do one, one month or two months something else, and then we go back to leg locks. So we have a bigger, bigger reset cycles. So we go back to that because four months doing leg locks, these people are dead. Their legs are broken already, and there's like a like a, some other you know overtraining injuries start to happen. So so I'm trying to still you know wiggle the system so to speak and answer it better because I think. Uh, I, I don't think we can scale it to like we only do armbar and you know then it's one technique forever. I think there is certain capacity of techniques that we have to know, and then we can you know we can manage around that because um, after certain level I don't think we can I can actually coach you or you know let's say teach you anything because after usually I say after purple you're free and you have to take on your own road and I can be guide to you more that, that there's no black belt techniques. Uh, but let's say I'll go back to the classes like this way that if I would do a turtle class and if I would do a, like turtle techniques, I, I guess I would have to show some, you know, versions, what, what, what are fundamental techniques from that turtle and what are the more exception ones. But then if you miss a class, then those techniques are not necessary actually to, to do jiu-jitsu. Uh, and, uh, because if we start with a basic turtle, you know, then maybe the first five minutes of the class would be we're just doing the basic turtle, you know, getting everybody on their mind. So if you are a white belt and there's a black belt in a class, then everybody does the same turtle. Yeah. And then that's the main thing that, you know, knees are wide and elbows and head and everything. We just fix the mistakes. 
and then we add certain technique to that. So if you miss that, it's not bad because next time we do the same thing, five minute turtle, and then we add another technique. And the main thing, what you have to get from that class is that turtle actually. And then randomly- you Everything turn- else is auxiliary. Is auxiliary, yeah. auxiliary and also probably to keep things fresh for the students. Yes. And then if you miss the technique, I don't mind because I know you have that turtle. You can roll, be safe, and just, you know, your level. Uh, if you're, I don't know, if you're a black belt, you can play like a, you know, very open turtle and do your tricks, add something to the technique. I could care less because you have a context to break it also. So in that sense, you know, kind of shortly said, uh, white belts and black belts can train together in the same class. Because uh, when there's drilling time, you can pull off everything you want. And then if it's white belt's time to drill, maybe they drill the one technique they did in the class, you know. But as a black belt, you can do like 10 different ones. Who cares? And you're kind of on your own, but you have to know the basic structure. So so I'm not limiting that if you pull something else off, oh, you have to stick to the class. You know, you know what you're doing. You know, even purple or brown, who cares? So then the main thing is I'm trying to get to your head is that turtle structure, you know. And everything else is because what I'm, a, you know, 20 years jiu-jitsu. Uh, my game from turtle basically is from turtle. I will, you know, let's say I stand up, I turn around, pull guard, or mm-hmm. I turtle roll you. Those are the techniques I use. And I can do it with a pretty high level. So my argument is also that black beltness is not defined by, you know, how much techniques you know. If my turtle is surviving against uh, you know decent black belts i will not give up my black back you know in that sense if i don't want to or you know it still happens but you know you know what i mean and then if i can survive 50 percent of times other my level my size black belt attacks and i can pull off one technique i'm a black belt it doesn't matter that i can do a 10 different techniques you know from turtle so so that's the trick i'm also you know wrestling with myself that that, uh, that how much you should teach because clearly I have I know those techniques but I'm choosing not to do all of them and so the question is how much do I have to show the people and uh, I, my theory is that I sh- have to show them enough that I can you know like uh, if I'm turtle somebody is at my right side I can run them over to my right I can roll them over to my left I guess I can have some other option you stand up and inverts. I can give them basic stuff, and then I'm not going to go like, let's do 20 other techniques from Turtle. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going that crazy. But I'm saying that from certain point, you have to take, um, you know, responsibility of your own, you know, route, so to speak. That I'm going to teach you certain fundamentals, like Kimuras and armbars, but I'm not going to go crazy like the rabbit hole, teaching you every kind of other submission exception there is. Because that's rabbit hole. You just end up teaching like old crazy sweeps. So, and also if you see like, you know, Gron Gracie, he doesn't do anything, but he's a very entertaining fighter. You know, he just grabs the collar and just keeps very simple. You know, if you see Marcelo, you don't see like him using spider guard. So that means even like uh, maybe spider guard is not even so, let's so fundamental do jiu-jitsu. If, uh, because I mean, look at Hodger. I always look at Hodger. Hodger's yeah. our fundamental curriculum. If you look at all his matches, yeah. he's doing fundamental curriculum. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it, it, it's a, it's a balance of what can you pull off because, and I think if you have that defensive structure, 
defensive ideas, and then you can get up, get by with less. And I also know why people like those techniques because it's learning something new always. But uh, my argument is, if I would teach you Kimura, and if I make a bottom guy defensively a super, super Superman, you will have forever interesting time finishing that Kimura. Uh, but if defensive knowledge is bad, then your Kimura finishing rate is uh, super high, and you get bored, and you're not willing to do this. But then the trick is, if you watch competition, we see all that goddamn old armor that goddamn Kimura all over again, everywhere. We don't see those exceptions we teach in a class. So the question is, how do we make... It's a lifelong journey, I think. How do we make that basic thing, fundamental thing, interesting to learn forever? And then how do we let people explore uh, and discover those exceptions? But I don't believe that's my job. I, I believe that I have to create an environment where I say, okay, do we have a Kimura grip? And I guess, you know, two out of three out of ten try to finish Kimura, but also do everything else you find in YouTube. But I put them in that position to isolate sparring. Understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then everybody can develop their own thing because they're, you know, leg dexterity and all those things. Because um, also, you know, if people defend, sometimes Kimuras are not there. So this is the more the way I would like to teach, you know, like, like Kimura and then go, go apeshit, you know, figure it out. And uh, do whatever you want, basically. And I hope some some Kimuras are also there. So it's more about control. If I'm talking about attack, and then if I'm talking about the escape, it's like I took my I take my hawking, and then it's like I I think you have to know the options like jab, cross, hook, body shot, and overhand in that sense. But then it's just figure it out, and the bottom person gives you low resistance, so you can have success, you know. And then if you have enough success, they make it harder. And this is the way you learn understand the chaos. Because the, there's no straight way out, so to speak. Like, give me the straight answer out of side control. If you watch how high-level people escape, it's never the techniques you kind of learned in a class, in a way. You understand what I mean? It just it just happens by their experience. It's cumulative experience, combining things, and somehow they escape. You know, you, you know what I mean? It's never going to be that. Yeah, and and I mean, in the sense that you're like, let, let's take let's take Mount for example. If I'm on Mount Bottom, or <clears throat> if you're watching a uh, a high level match, <clears throat> the person on bottom doesn't get out by doing a single escape, regardless of yeah. which whichever one you taught. They've blended them together and created enough chaos, created enough of a transition that they're now able to essentially have a window to get out. But it was never just they did an enable escape perfectly and they get out. No, the guy can counter that. They have to string yeah. together escapes. So and the hope that they yeah. can create a window to get out. Yeah. And the, the question is, then, how do we teach that? Actually, I would start to, let's say, to teach mount escapes like this, that I would start from quarter mount. You understand? I, I teach mm -hmm. backwards. I would start, like, one ankle is between the legs. So then I would teach them, you can push the knee and, you know, get to half guard. You can go to deep half guard under the leg. And I guess if you get to half guard, you can go to full guard. But I would just let them, I would give them even, like, barely go underhook, you know, deep half guard or push the knee between half guard. That's your escapes, you know? And then and then I would go like, okay, next step would be if you were successful with that, then I would start from mount and your ankle not being between the legs. And then you have to get the ankle between the legs, you know? There's also techniques to that. And from sure. that position, you can ankle between the legs or you can go even double underhooks from the mount bottom or, you know, the frames I use, whatever it is. 
So I would teach backwards in that sense, and I would let them just play, because uh, just showing them one thing it doesn't, you know, it doesn't prepare them for the reality. Because if they spar later, they're done if they're dependent on one option. Well, and the other thing that you're doing that uh, that I think is, I think you're fully aware of, but you're you're, you're touching on it implicitly right now is that you're giving your students a, as often as you can an objective even though uh, they might not necessarily possess all the techniques to achieve that objective, they at least have a goal in mind so that they can invent whatever they can invent to get to that position. So instead of just telling them, uh, this is the elbow escape to get out of mount. No, you're telling them, get the leg, but get to quarter mount. So they know what that looks like. They know what the end result should be. Now it's a question of, you don't even have to teach them a technique. They'll try to come up with something to do that. Yeah. And half the time, a smart student will probably do something kind of similar to what you're going to teach. And I think it's like uh, a very good example that uh, I, you know, I'm guilty of this also sometimes uh, that if you start to explain, you know, I, I'm, using, I'm using the basketball, you know, if you start to explain how, let's say, basketball throw, yeah, you elbow and then finally your wrist, you know, goes. If you start to go like, 35 degrees, this degrees, this, when this, when every joint moves and you have a, like a A4 page of just like movements, you know, and you go like, oh shit, this is so complicated. But then you tell people like, take a cookie from the jar, from the, take a cookie from the high jar, high shelf, and they will do that movement by themselves. You understand? So, mm -hmm. uh, if I think we're getting too many times, I think we're, we're starting to explain people that things that they don't need to be explained. And I think teaching backwards is a very powerful method because if I give you the ankle already in and say, push the knee in, they will find a way because, and then after they done it, did it themselves, then I can correct them because they have context. Then I will say, don't push with two arms. Don't do this, add more this, but I'm guiding them to the, you know, to the better answer. If I start to explain how the elbow knee escape like looks and works, they're like, you know, so, yeah, and I think that's also, I think what you're talking about is is one of the characteristics of jiu-jitsu versus, let's say, basketball or even wrestling or a lot of other sports. The set of techniques in jiu-jitsu dwarfs that of basketball. You know, in basketball, shooting is, you know, one would argue probably one of the most important techniques, but it's just one technique and it's had years and years of coaches teaching it. And as a result, there are a lot of these expressions, like you said, get the get the cookie out of the high jar. Yeah. Or in a, you know, I've seen many basketball coaches here in the states talk about making sure you wave. It's all about the yeah. follow through, yeah. you know. And wrestling coaches all seem to have the habit of having expressions. Yes. You know, three points in a line, or whatever it may be, that they rhyme, they stick in the in the in the student's head, and. It works because, I mean, if you you could do it for jujitsu, but that means you'd have these expressions for hundreds of techniques in a way, you know, for in a lot of people's minds. Now we could argue how do you, you know, what's the ideal subset of techniques that a person in jujitsu needs to know to have just basic fundamentals and everything else is extraneous. But still, it, it there's still way more techniques just looking at the fact that the main positions, let's say there are five main positions, right? You could count knee on stomach as a, as a as another one, but you know, close guard, half guard, side mount, mount, back mount. That's five positions. 
that in and of itself, there's so much complexity there that I think it's a little harder. And I also think the this, this sport is young and the fact that yes. there's not that that age of, of teaching. Now, speaking of those positions, I've seen actually Christian talk about this at Globetrotter camps where he has a class where he just says one person is just passing, the other one is just playing guard, and it's essentially a wrestling class. And he talked about people almost inventing Mm-hmm. jiu-jitsu that he would eventually teach but they they don't get taught the pass they just start doing it because they have a clear objective with beginners still on the topic of beginners do you think it's possible and worthwhile to teach them kind of what i mentioned earlier the hierarchy of positions say this is closed guard this is half guard this is side mount this is mount this is back mount and in general this position if you're attacking for example is superior to this position so if you're in close guard try to get to half guard if you're in half guard try to get to side control and i know it's super mechanical and i know there are tons of exceptions in terms of how you can go from one position and skip to go to another but do you think that's something that has merit to to teach new students so that even though they don't know what a half guard pass is they don't know what any sweeps are from from close guard, they at least know, hey, if I can get to this other position, I'm winning. I've done better. I, I can I can agree with that. Uh, I guess when we when we teach people, we're gonna say that you know why mount is good, you know, uh, mm-hmm. why back mount is good. It's I don't think it's always that progression in that sense, guard, half guard, whatever. But clearly, passing the legs, why it's good, you know, because you get access to certain things. So in that sense. Uh, I think in a class, we're trying to give them as simple context as it is, you know, because otherwise it's an honest question. Why would you have to pass the guard? But the honest answer is also you don't have to pass the guard because the answer is you have to win eventually. So then if you are, the answer is you have to pass the guard, then the leg locks are out because you clearly, the whole point is the winning. So, um, so I, I don't like to actually say it's like you have to pass the guard. I guess you your role your idea is to go to the certain position that allow you to you know win more win faster win better win more often so and you have a very shortcut as a legs and you have a long road as upper body so i think in my in i think we we're trying to introduce people to both that um, i don't like that guard pass, passing is like the the number one thing because eventually if you're if you're, uh, it depends on objective, you know, if you're standing at their guard, just run, run away. Why would you have to go there? Or why leg locks are bad? So, uh, but I understand your, your, your idea that in that sense, there is a position or hierarchy, get to the mount, get to the back. But also there's a shortcut of legs that uh, they have to know it's not bad. And if they, if they see something in internet, some famous people are saying, oh, leg locks are cheating. They have to know that they're wrong. And they have to know that those people, they don't know what they're t- saying. And soon that we have, you know, we have to be better and we have to tell people that it's also okay. Because uh, I understand why position hierarchy is there, but it's not that rigid. And, um, and also fighting shows that it's not that rigid. Uh, so, you know, it's like a little bit uh, in rant again, but I would introduce them to both shortcut and a long way. So I would argue that you run the risk with leg locks, no, let, let's more be general. I, th- I would argue that you run the risk when teaching shortcuts that you're going to 
inadvertently give students uh, bad habits early on? No. Because most people will go the path of least resistance. And if you teach them a shortcut, they'll do the shortcut. And you might have a situation using leg locks yeah. now where they'll end up falling back for leg locks, have early success, which great, they're winning, but I don't think that success would necessarily tra- – if they develop the habit of doing that, they're going to not develop the 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 skill of passing the guard, which becomes more important as people – as level goes up because people's leg lock defense goes up. Uh, so my answer would be – I think you answered it already, but uh, if you – like – it's better to do sometimes it's better to teach people why things you know are necessary instead of just refusing them to do certain things because i don't think we can you know ruin beginners that fast because they have to learn the lesson and i need i need the gym full of people that can go to legs and they can pass and passing is in a way if you have a leg lock, leg lock threat Passing becomes a little bit easier because people stop pushing with the legs so much. So to to get access to certain passing and the people will retract their legs, you need leg locks in that sense. And to keep to, them honest, I agree. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so open guard player actually understands the, why they can't do it. And I don't. And I think it's my responsibility and coaches to to explain what it is. And I definitely after that I have people that maybe jump on leg locks and but then you know if the top guy gets top so they learn the lesson also so i find the lesson is very valuable in an early stage you know to get through this to this teenager age of jiu-jitsu that that they get really not burned but they get like oh that's why it's bad to jump on legs not like if you're purple belt and brown belt and then it's taught you know that leg locks are but i i think if you introduce the reality to people because the point is First, um, let's say if I would teach uh, the be- beginners course from the from the objective of street fighting, then I would say probably pass the guard, you know, and uh, I wouldn't go like okay, jump to the legs, you know, just put your back. But if I'm teaching jujitsu from the per- perspective of the freedom and everything is allowed and it's jujitsu, then falling on your back after leg locks and ending up in a bottom is not that bad. But then later we can go like uh, after, you know, if you change objective MMA, street you know, and jiu-jitsu match, end of the round, why not? So, don't, so then we can, you know, drill them differently also and uh, not allow them to go to the legs because you have to actually force them to pass because let's say in this round, you cannot jump on the legs. So I can play with both and they, they, sh- they, they should understand because all the, you know, the, the, about the drilling and everything, we talked about the block spot stuff. I need people to understand why. And I need people to understand that they are responsible of their decisions. And if I hide certain decision-making process from them, they will not be informed the best. And they would still sometimes, if they're, you know, denied jumping to the legs because it's not good and in fighting you shouldn't, if they haven't have experience of doing those things and learning from them, they will do it in a weirdly, in a weird way in some future event and still try to pull it off. Uh, but, but I really want to, you know, teach them, you know, the ex- give them the experience package, why they, things are good, why things are bad, and I'm making them responsible. You understand? So I, I don't want that responsibility. I want to make them accountable from the, for their decision. 
And yes, we can trade them, you know, train them and drill them. If the MMA fight comes and you, you jump on a legs less and everything. Uh, but I want them to be smart on their own because, because it, it, let's say, I understand the context, jumping to the legs would be bad, but in some times it's actually justified. And if you pull it off, it's you. So I don't like that black and white kind of things. And also to learn open guard, you need leg locks. So why not get exposed to that very early? So And we can, we can overrun those habits later with drillings and stuff. You know, Sometimes it's allowed, sometimes it's not. So I would still think that that freedom of exposure to everything is better than denial. So it sounds like then, if I understand things correctly, you would not be adverse, you would not be against teaching as one of those submissions in a basics class to those first three month students, you teach them a straight ankle lock. This is a straight ankle lock. Yes. But when they are four or five months into being a white belt, they're now training in fundamentals class. It might be rare if you let people live in a white belt class that are rolling to give them the ability to do that. So one of the rules would be you cannot do foot locks right now. Like that you might do to, to, to protect maybe people trying that in at that level and maybe let's just say at blue belt then they can i'm just using that arbitrarily but what i'm saying is you can you can there's what you can teach is one set of techniques what you allow live knowing the emotion of students and sometimes they get that that urge to win and even though like i I don't doubt that you're doing everything in your ability to make mature safe training partners you know the minute those people walk in the door right and and knowing knowing thresholds, knowing about applying pressure so that people have a chance to tap and protect themselves and we want to train every day. But you also know, I would imagine from experience, that there are people that will not, like you say you weed them out, there's still going to be some people, a good intention student, they get a, that, oh my God, the first time I'm going to be, I got an arm bar on, a, you know, on this person, and they're going to get a little excited and stuff can happen. So do are you using rules to... to create a sub to basically limit the techniques that are allowed to create a, a safer environment and less opportunity for of course. not catastrophic injury, yeah. but, but, you know, injuries that could be preventable. Uh, yeah. So, you know, when there's a, when I'm teaching about passing clearly later during the drills and also during the sparring later, we have rules that, you know, more than average try to pass the guard, but I'm not going to neglect leg locks because then the bottom guy knows they cannot jump to my legs. They get lazy, but they know that mm. most of the times they they were passing the guard and they're developing those skills. But the threat of one time out of ten they jump on your leg should be there. You know, if you're really sloppy, I would take the leg. So you better keep your legs to yourself and let's you know do the passing. So we certain we have a lot of those uh, guiding rules in the sparring that uh, I I think it's a very terrible look when you do something in a class and then most people would not use it in a, later in a sparring because it's a new thing. So my thing is that I have to create rules that praise that praise uh, risky behavior, and that is uh, trying new things that you learn in a class in a sparring. So usually, let's say, um, let's say if, uh, you know, with some leg locks we did, you, you have to let them make, you know, if they do a knee slide, you know, try to grab the ankle, even if you don't want to, but try to grab the ankle so they can backstep. So you also feed them backstep. And if they do a backstep fall to leg lock, 
the resistance there is like maybe 60%, maybe. So you let them figure it out. Even like a couple of times in the beginning, you let them tap you more easily. And if they get a hang of it, you can raise resistance and not get tapped. You know, resist more. But still, you give them uh, like a, you praise certain things that you, you praise risky things that you want them to do a backstep because this is what we learned. So you just grab, even knowing that maybe it's a bad thing to do, but you grab and let them backstep. So so that's one way to force it. Or or let's say uh, if we do leg locks, then I say more than average, go for legs and don't pass. And maybe sometimes I say like, okay, guys, like a bottom guy, for me to backstep better, I need the bottom guy play more outside De La Riva. So for the backstep, so the top uh, bottom guy, more than average, try to go force yourself to go outside De La Riva, even if it's not your game. But today you have to go. So also bottom guy is forced out of their comfort zone to figure out what the hell I'm going to do there, you know? You have certain games there. And that it may expose them to force them to, you know, adapt to that game also. And, oh, I, I actually need techniques here because if I don't force them there, they don't think about it. So bottom guy has to kind of force, okay, you have to, you can attack, but go play more outside the river. So I have more chances to go, to go back steps. And if I pull off a back step, Resistance drops. Maybe the Riva is like, you know, sparring speed and everything. But as soon as I get backstep, I uh, fall to honey hole, whatever, you know, outside, inside Senkaku. Then resistance drops to 60. And then, you know, I get to my position and you have to kind of make it conceptually harder by time, you know. So this is the way I force new habits. Then person can learn to, you know, finish the heel hook or something. And they, as a, as a guy that gave the backstep to them, you can develop your calmness. And awareness in a leg lock, not freaking out because you know the resistance dropped and it's not real anymore. Yeah. And as soon as soon as the backstepper get there, gets their like things going and they can, you know, relax and start to attack better, you can go the resistance higher and then even, you know, sometimes go 100%, you know, in 100% or close to sparring. So, but I really find that if I force them also, the, the De La Riva guy to be inside submission to find the calmness, to learn to defend, to, to make it harder. Because mostly themselves, they wouldn't make that choice. They would avoid, you know, leg locks. They want to run out very fast. But I make them stay there. I make them be calm and aware that the submission is going to happen. And they both know, even if you get the submission, that they know in their mind, well, I was given that, you know, because the resistance is dropped. But nobody's going to, you know, like, ha-ha, you know, that I tap you and then I there's gonna not gonna be a discussion that something was given. And if you tap me a couple of times, I raise resistance. So it's fun for me to train also my defense and fun for you to, you know, train attacks. So, so I have no I rules. can Okay, so I can see uh head coaches and gym owners that I've spoken to in the United States uh come back and say, Pre, that's all great, but I have I have to deal with student retention and there's a good chunk of my students that would much prefer to just come in and do randori and putting all these rules on practice is going to drive them away because all they want to do is roll and they're not that interested in in skill development but and i need to cater to them as much as i cater to the students that want to develop the skill but how do you why do you say that let's say if i roll and then my rule is also be like uh today more than average two back steps so or even i can say if you do and like let's say if there's six minutes roll and then i say like Try to go three to five times to, to backstep. And after that, you can do whatever you want. So I'm not neglecting the full role. I'm not going to, you know, I know what you mean. I'm not going to damage the experience. 
people understand that I'm. Forced. Well, I'm not saying you're damaging it. I'm just I'm giving you the point of view that I've heard from people. Yeah, I'm. I'm just saying, just just to clarify, like this is this is to, in a way almost to be devil's advocate because I'm I'm more me personally I'm more on the side of you because I'm all about skill development and just rolling for rolling sake without having any objective. To me, is is not is like when I go to roll, even if it's Randori, I have specific objectives. They don't know what I'm doing, yeah. you know, but I I'm going to be trying to do certain things. But I'm just saying I've heard wait, and maybe it's a cultural thing, maybe it's maybe it's like an American mentality to I don't some think degree, so. but. I think it's misunderstanding because then they misunderstand what the role is because I'm I'm for that rolling is good. You know, my class is anyway drilling and rolling heavy. Uh, you know, half an hour we drill and then we roll half an hour. Uh, but I think people appreciate the trade-off because they know that it makes sense to that I can pull off the new thing that I just learned in a class in a sparring. I think people want that. And I, I think if there's no rules in place that will favor favor taking those risks and not getting like uh, really punished by trying new thing you know if i try a leg lock and you right away ruin everything i will stop trying that and then the class objective to actually get better in leg locks is not going to be fulfilled so i think i would me as a coach i have to have a good balance that what i'm asking from people that Two-thirds of the role could be even like, you know, 67%, do whatever you want. But those, you know, 30%, whatever, 40% of times, I'm forcing you to try a new thing. And I think everybody has to find the, the reasonable ratio that people that are they want to roll, they understand that, oh, if I'm also like, let's say, if, the you know, we talked about the outside, the rebound, backstep. And then I say like, more than average, if you play a couple of times the Riva, but I say more than average, play outside the Riva. And then after that, your conscience is clear. You gave them chances to back steps, and then you can play your own game. But at least a couple of times you gave them a back step, yeah? So if somebody gets like, if both of you are getting a couple of times each roll back steps, then it's already enough. One, well, a half an hour sparring, it's already you know, enough back steps that you tried. Some back steps are not fed. They just happen because... You know, sparring happens and some backsteps are fed to you. So the ratio of doing new things in a sparring actually after class is pretty high. Understand what I mean? So so then it's like I think if, if the criticism is that what you say, then I'm saying that people are maybe using the ratio wrong. And if you just force people to not roll, not to have fun and only do the stuff they learned in a class, maybe that's too much pushing, you know? So the ratio should be Real that everybody understands. Let's do like a you know famous saying. Let's do something for me, and also for a group. If I only do something for me, let's say you're that partner, you go like, oh fuck this third diva, you know, I'm not gonna do it. Then people will not roll with you later because they know that you're not letting them to try new things that you just learned and you wanna try in a sparring because that's the test, you know. So they're gonna look for different partners that are not assholes. So. If you want to have good partners, then you are you need to do something for the group as a minimal requirement of you know the ratio, and then you deserve to do your own thing. And I think if the ratio is very good, everybody is willing to do the right thing. If I'm asking too much from people, like eighty percent do the outside the river, they go like, "Oh, fuck this shit! I'm not gonna," you know. Understand what I mean? Yep. So I think it's a it's a misuse of method then 
if the feedback would would, would be like that. And if people are saying that, then um, clearly I will also disagree if the you know the ratio would be eighty to twenty for a new technique as being eighty. I think that ratio is overblown. And in some circumstances, it could make sense if it's a very deliberate isolation class for certain skill. But for overall rolling, I think the ratio would be way too off. So I, I would agree with that criticism, but fix the ratio. Fix the ratio. Um, I've always thought, because of uh, partially because of probably my background, because I think with anything you have, you know, your background influences a lot of your your thought process and beliefs. But yeah. I've always thought it would be cool to have to apply the university paradigm to jiu-jitsu schools. What I mean by that is having semesters and saying for this semester, we have a class focused on a subject. So for example, that subject could be leg entanglement 101 for three months. And then another section could be half guard passing. So instead of a student, and let's just say for the, for the, you know, I, it, it makes more sense to look at this as let's say a colored belt. These are people that already have, you know, some established knowledge. I could totally see you, you applying this to white belts as well. You just like anything, you have to take these courses in order to like, if you want to take half guard passing, you have to take the, the basics class, <laughs> you know, like that, that's how universities do it. You can't just, I can't go to a, a university and take quantum physics. I have to make, I have to either have taken it or show that I know how, mm -hmm. you know, possess physics and all the prerequisites kind of knowledge. So having a system like that, where you spend, let's say three month period on a topic and that topic has prerequisites potentially. Do you think that's something that, that has, that has potential? And do you think it's feasible given, as we've talked about, there's students that come casually twice a week. There's students that are very passionate and come four or five days a week. Do you think that's something that could be? I, I do it. You do it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, so how do you do it? So how do you do it? I, let's say um, we really a bit touched on it. So let's say I, I, I think I do it like a two to three month sections. Um, you can do the same thing in a fundamental class that we do where white belts uh, train and up to blue belt. Everybody can join, but they're usually the people that already finished the beginner's course. But to have two, uh, up to two, I think, and in some cases three, I think in an advanced group you can maybe do it differently. But I think two-month section is doable. Uh, probably you should have some, you know, drilling weeks between or certain like a mindset off taking the weeks. Understand what I mean? Uh, taking the mm -hmm. mindset off, taking the mind off, sorry. And um, I think it benefits. And then you can, you know, build it slowly up. And uh, the key is always what I've learned, and it's, it's actually quite hard, is to teach as less as possible every class. So then it benefits everybody. Because the, 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 the bad thing what jiu-jitsu coaches do, and I'm, you know, I'm talking about my experience, is you want to give them all your heart today. You know, but you can't. You can't teach them jiu-jitsu everything today yeah it's not gonna work and then that means coaches will burn out and everything and then you teach in one class three things and then you know third is missing and then next class the third comes to the class like six people they have no understanding of what the fuck happened and you go like oh shit i can't do a continuous classes because those people didn't join and i have to start from the beginning again you know mm -hmm. so that's why i think it's important to teach as less 
uh, literally as less as possible, as little as possible, that uh, if you skip a class, it's retainable. You know, it, you can you can just add this later. So I've done this now with uh, certain leg locks and stuff. Um, I still sometimes, you know, fail to teach less. Uh, but the key is to actually teach like maybe only one one thing, one move, one transition. And then you just drill the context again. Drill it with a feedback, just drilling it. And with drilling, nobody minds it's, if it's one thing. Because I think with a, with a, this traditional jiu-jitsu class structure, you have to teach the way, you know, it's half an hour warm-up or 20 minutes and then it's three techniques out of your ass. Sometimes they're connected and then you roll. If you don't drill, if you don't resistance drill feedback, then you do a 10 minutes and people are bored. You know, oh, I did armbar from side control. Now what? Oh, now it's like a dislock and now it's that lock and then you drill. I think it's one of the worst training methods overall for a class, maybe for some very specific narrow field, maybe you can doable, but I, I haven't found that why it's actually useful. So well, how I did do it is, let's say maybe, maybe with a leg lock, let's say there's a certain transition you go, you know, uh, and then we, I just showed that transition. And then people, let's say they have done the other classes and I just show this and then we do a drill, two minutes, two and a half each. And then with another drill, two minutes and a half each and then feedback we fix mistakes, do another drill, and we train. We try to create that transition in uh, that drill. That uh, some your your partner has to create that transition. If you're good, they do it very fast, you know. And if they're really good, do it super fast and everything. So we just drill this, and because it's a it's a progressive resistance and it's a game and it's a failure is actual there, present. You can drill that half an hour and not ever feel bored. And then it's only one thing you learned, but it was interesting because it was a play. And then new class comes in, new new maybe you know after two days another class, and then if you miss the class, it's hard it's, it's super easy to teach you what what actually happened, and then I teach another thing, and it benefits the people that skip classes and it benefits people that actually are taking classes because they get to drill a lot and the retention, like a I don't know, retention ratio is through the roof because they're drilling it so much with the resistance so they're like memorizing it all the time. If you're just adding new technique, new technique, new technique, it's like, you know, if you learn three, six things, like you know, every class you have three techniques maybe, let's say some submissions or passing, imagine learning in a week six new things in jiu-jitsu, even as a, as a purple belt, you know? It's like, how the fuck are we going to do that? I cannot. Well, that was my point originally with the white belt when, when I said you're teaching yeah. them all these different submissions each day. And, and well, you gave me but, the distinction between would, beginners and. Yeah, but then I would say, like, if the, we have a beginner's course, let's say in Tuesday and Thursday, I'm going to teach an arm bar maybe in a Tuesday. I'm going to teach a triangle in a Thursday. It's still better. You know, it's two techniques. It's not like two techniques in a class already. So we're, we're trying to keep the ratio down. And uh, they're training the armbar, you know, finishing armbar, mechanics, mechanics, other guys resisting. So I even think, uh, I think it's still a lot, but it's still, I think it's an acceptable ratio. And we're drilling a lot in that. But they still forget. But at least I'm making them realize what was submission, you know, and then, you know, how to tap, basically. And they mm -hmm. get a little bit sweat going, but I'm trying to keep the ratio down because even teaching two, three, things in a class sometimes it's hard so that is a really big challenge and many people argue that like let's say your criticism will say oh but people you know i have to cater to people that come recreational grapplers they come to the class 
They want to learn techniques. And I think those people are completely, not even kidding about it, it's completely wrong. And uh, uh, I, will, I can show you how just doing a like, class about arm bars, just about simple arm bar, and day one, uh, or you know, let's say blue belt, white belt, at the middle level, I can keep that class interesting with resistance training, progressive resistance with the feedbacks, and people go, why actually, oh, I got to train this, I got feedback for me, not like overall, I got to try it in a resisting opponents that make that harder, harder, harder. And this all prepared them to pull it off in a sparring, you know? And then we have sparring rules that, you know, force certain positions and everything else. And uh, uh, there is no, like, uh, I'm, you know, I'm kind of strict about it. There is no debate. Like, this is, this is how we should do stuff, you know? I, I know it sounds really like, oh, I, I'm the, you know, I know it, but I don't think the format of showing techniques, three techniques in a half an hour period is, um, is um, like maybe in a seminar format, but I see even the way I do seminars is way different than I've seen people. They, they do like in an hour, they do four or five techniques, you know, just go like, go, go and the beginners go like after an hour. Well, it's like you said, I think, I think a lot of that is, is actually because the teacher, it's, I think it, in most places it comes from a good place. The teacher wants to share all this yeah. knowledge with them, but unfortunately it took the amount of time it took the instructor to attain that knowledge is far more than what you could expect even if you taught it better than you than you were taught it to yourself do you expect to be able to do that in an hour or two hour period is is and then i I also uh, the question is i would just ask people and i don't know maybe they've asked but maybe they don't care or maybe they just think it's normal You, you know imagine that most people are doing i'm doing weekend seminars you know i because then i can teach people something and and it's a sections and stuff, not like um, sometimes it's a same topic, but sometimes it's cut. And But let's say people doing three-hour seminars. I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm talking out of my ass, but we can, we can talk about here like 10 to 15 techniques in a, that three-hour time. You, do you agree with me? Like in three hours. We're we're talking about, is it possible? We're talking about if it's constructive. No, let's say average. I would say that uh, how seminars are taught. Let's say if it's a three-hour seminar, averagely, we can expect at least 10 techniques in those three-hour time. I mean, it depends on who the instructor is, but I can but definitely you know see I mean. that you could yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. It's definitely possible to, yeah, and, to, to, to cover 10 techniques in that and period And a lot of, of seminars are based on, you know, like just random techniques, you know, just new techniques, new techniques. So I'm talking about that. And uh, imagine that you learn, you learn in three hours three things. That require context, timing, resistance, how to finish. And then I know it's emotion. I know, oh, some famous person came and I got to take a picture with him and I learned something new. I had fun. I understand. Well, that, that's what it's all about. What you said right there, yeah. nine times out of ten, is getting the photo with the, yes. with the, with the celebrity. The problem <laughs> is I think both, of the, both parties should be responsible that we as clients, we should demand better, better product because that product is not good for technique retention because after a week you can't remember half of them and you don't have time to make it yours because your new techniques are coming already in your regular class. And we should demand that those, like if I would be the person that would do 10 techniques in a, let's say in a three hours, I could imagine that me being wonder, me wondering like, is it very useful that are they actually going to use them 
Or do I have a mindset that even if they pick up one technique, this seminar has been worth it and they, and, and they you know, forget the nine of them? I would say I would be wasting my time if I would give them a technique buffet and I hope that just one technique would stick. Because if that's the mindset, I really honestly don't understand the mindset because why would I, as a, as a very famous or whatever accomplished person that, you know, I've gathered this information and teaching this with my passion and then it's just nine things just fall off right away. I would want my, you know, ratio of success or people doing my things and getting, you know, using those things later be higher, at least over half, you know, that they would use it. So, so sometimes I don't understand. It's very hard for me to relate to those kind of techniques, seminars. I understand why people like them. And sometimes they're saying, oh, it was a good class. And I'm, I'm holding my head like, oh, fucking hell. This was the worst class ever. But people, I know why people say it. So I'm, I'm looking for from the different perspective. But then if I'm ask, asking them usually like, do you understand that you're not going to use like most of it in after a week? But then they go, like, I don't care, you know? So if that's their answer, I respect that. But I think it's also coaches that we have responsibility that, like, let's make it better. And I, I don't know how to justify those kind of seminars that why they're good. Because I'm, I'm a little bit thinking that we're wasting, those guys are wasting their time because I think they should find, uh, like, a better way to pass on their knowledge. Because for me, it would be like uh, the way I do seminars I'm sad when you forget most of it what I did because that's the way I do very drilling heavy seminars. We drill a lot. Uh, so it's very hard to forget me. And also the, the stuff I teach, I like to go like this way that the stuff I teach, that like you, most cases, you will use it every class. So that's why I'm teaching those fundamental postures and stuff. So you can never roll without them in a, in a next roll, so to speak. So the, the, uh, the, the probability of you getting better in them is very high. If I would teach you a certain specific thing that I know that some people pick it up, but then I would also say, I probably have a disclaimer that if I would teach a certain game that I would have a disclaimer that why this is good, I think it's good to get, uh, you know, you, you see a game, let's say deep half guard game, you know, you get exposed to that we, because we talk about top and bottom. But also, let's be honest, not everybody will keep playing the deep half card game. But then, as I have to be honest myself, do I have a disclaimer? And uh, if you 20 people come to a deep half card, you know it's going to be like, you know, over half of them not going to use it. Maybe a couple of persons will, will continue it. But also, I'm appreciating that if you teach a game, that most people get exposed. Because it's very also dangerous, let's say, if you don't know what the lockdown is. You, you also get injured because of that, because you do something stupid. Yeah. So that happens at our gym a lot. They'll get that one. The one white belt will yeah. find the YouTube video with, yeah. with lockdown and start doing it to everybody. Yeah. So I find that exposure is good. And, but just as a, as a game and as a, maybe you teach five to 10 techniques from the same game, then I also understand, you know, it depends on hours you spend maybe in three hours, you know, you have to drill and stuff and feedbacks. So I understand the game as a technique. Uh, group but just some i've been in those seminars when it's random literally random and because uh, the guy is good in random things you know and they're teaching so i'm like how does that make sense you know and um so i think both 
both of us as coaches and clients can be, um, you know, we have to see those things, we have to understand, and we have to demand a better product. As a clients and coaches can go like, am, am I really using usefully their time to teaching random things? Because I'm feeling that I have to provide. And if you come to my seminar, I want to actually make your time useful, you know, that you feel like after a week or like everything is still good. Understand what I mean? Yeah, I feel like when the 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 seminars that I was lucky enough to attend in Iceland, uh, where you taught, I think a lot, and I believe this is intentional on your part, but I, I'm not sure. I wasn't in your mind, but I feel like there was as much emphasis on the technique you were teaching as well as challenging kind of dogma and tradition within the jiu-jitsu community, specifically around teaching, teaching methodologies and, of course, your your uh, your clap your one two three clap analogy but the fact that you are always yeah and i don't know how intentional that was but you always found a way to bring that up to in essence i viewed you like my impression of you remind me of a lot of college professors i had where part of what they wanted to do was just infuse you with critical thinking skills so that you would be like all right i'm not going to take anyone's word for it not even preets i'm going to process it. I'm going to apply my own critical thinking and I'm going to apply my logic and I'm going to filter and, and essentially have a BS meter on things and say, okay, I think, you know, this seems reasonable enough. This doesn't seem reasonable enough, that sort of thing. So obviously you're teaching the technique, but you're always teaching, you are also teaching, Hey guys, like don't take my word for it. Don't take anyone's word for it. Have some reasoning, have critical thinking, apply yeah. methodology. You said it really nicely. So that, that is my goal. Sometimes I overdo it. I got also recently criticism of people being frustrated because I wanted to teach them how to learn things and how to be a better partner and then doing techniques. So it wasn't, it didn't end up having a good ratio. And, uh, and I appreciate the feedbacks. Also people tell me that they ask like, are you willing to take my feedback? I was like, bring it. And there was other people around also that they said like, do you mind if I do it publicly? I was like, no, bring it. I have to be example of, I always said like, if you have something to say, it's a constructive feedback, I will take it. And uh, so that is what, what you said is, is true. And uh, I'm, you know, planting those seeds. And, and uh, sometimes, you know, I find coaches don't like them because then they have to deal with that, you know, that people are starting to question, why do you bow? Why do you call them professor? Why there's a clap? And then, then maybe I also heard that people haven't thought about it before. Oh, why do we clap? Or why do I call you professor? I was like, yeah, you don't have to. Nobody calls me in, a, in my gym. It's like, I'm Preet. You know, I'm a, not even a coach or a trainer or whatever. I just Preet. Why is that bad? Why well, it's like, oh, it's not res or you have to show the respect or whatever. Who the fuck cares? I'm front of the line because I know more. And this stuff I'm teaching, it should be enough that people know that's why I'm front of the line. Having titles around. And first of all, it's a Portuguese language professor, you know, in English context. So I just make, you know, I'm poking people and I, I think you said it very nicely that I'm making them question things. And, and if I, I don't see many people talking about those things, you know, questioning teaching methods and stuff. And, and I've been approached by, you know, you know, beginners and other stuff that, are, oh, I never thought about it. Nobody's actually criticizing other black belts, you know, and what they do. And I was like, exactly. So I'm, I'm, it's not a personal attack, but, but now also these days, uh, some black belts, because they always know that I'm always looking at their classes in, a, in that way, 
So they, they are actually asking me, like, Preet, what do you think? And then I'm giving them my honest opinion, you know, what I think was good, what I, I would do differently, but I understand why they did it this way. And uh, some coach in some camp uh, was, you know, messing something up. And I was like, yeah, you had a hard time with that thing because you said it wrong, because people didn't get it. And then he spent like 20 minutes of explaining something that could maybe could have been explained in 10 minutes. So I'm happy that some people have uh, approached me also. I know some people are super annoyed by it and uh, they don't like it. Uh, but it is what it is. So in a scientific world, you know, I think if I'm using that word right, then I'm getting peer-reviewed, you know, getting criticized, right. getting your work taken apart by somebody is uh, is very well established, and that's what, what pushes them. And that's why you don't publish your work before you're really sure, mostly, yeah? That it's, you know, getting... In theory, that's what should yeah, be done. In, yeah, <laughs> but that's what I mean, that I think in jiu-jitsu... I think people are releasing their stuff. Sometimes even me. I, that's why I, I need those those people around me that will call me out. That we have to call out people that are doing that could do better. And if uh, uh, you know, I know that if if somebody does a turtle class and if I'm around, it's always weird, you know. And uh, and uh, I, I enjoy that uh, Sven Groten actually did the Iceland class. Uh, and then he was talking about the claw, you know, that wrestling claw kind of mm-hmm. get in. Well, I saw, I actually saw that on YouTube, the yeah. claw ride position. So I think he mentioned that also that we're not going to talk about how we get there, but it happens in transitions, you know, and because we know that, you know, there's a pre-turtle or whatever, you know. And I was okay with that disclaimer because I think just just getting the claw, is if I do a turtle, is really hard. But if you have a disclaimer, okay, this is what happens in a scrambling. You get that grip, and when you get it, what to do? But we're not going to do a setups to get those grips because it would be a different class. Correct. And then it's like, oh, wonderful. All I need is that disclaimer that then I know that people do not have the so, so much wrong impression that it just happens, you know, because we clearly have a defensive strategy to avoid that and also setups to make it happen. So I enjoy that, that I, I consider it a little bit like my doings in a way that people are talking like this. Because I'm, you know, I'm being annoying uh, for long by pointing the, those things out and saying certain things defensively. So, um, so it's nice to see, and 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 uh, I think it's very healthy also when coaches are talking about, you know, their things. What do you think about my class and what you do differently? And uh, uh, I would love that. And putting, I think, also Aaron Milam in some Iceland class. I think it was two years ago. After the class, it was a back take kind of thing. And he said, like, publicly from all the black belts, like, what do you think about my class? I was really surprised that I did it, like, publicly. Usually, they, you know, people ask, you know, personally, they come in and they talk to after class, to sit around, have a zip of coffee. But and uh, then, I, of course, I, I couldn't say, Aaron Milan, that I love this class. But I said, like, in next class, I will show you how to beat it. So I made a really Estonian joke. And um, I, th- I think Milan got it, but a lot of people were like, oh, shit, you said what? And uh, But it was very, you know, I enjoyed definitely Milan's class. And he was attacking, so my job would have been like, how do, you know, how do we show it it doesn't work when it doesn't work? And then we have a sport, you know, his skill, my skill, and then somebody loses because there's pressure, time, speed, everything else. So, 
So, uh, and uh, I enjoy that when, you know, people are putting themselves uh, in that, those vulnerable places that somebody would criticize their work. And I really feel that we should do it more often because it only makes people expose their mistakes and next time they do it better, you know. But I think in some way, many, many, you know, we can say authorities also like living in their, in their bubble and then, you know, everything they kind of say is... I mean. You're, now you're touching on something that's that you know everyone has fragile egos and yeah. and, and it's hard for it's hard really, for people to take criticism not personally like it's very hard for people to separate you know preet the person and the relationship you have with that other person with preet making a professional yeah. critique of something you're doing and and that's just that's all walks of life all professions that yeah. people have very fragile egos and I guess this is one way to you know I have to learn how to how to approach this and maybe do it if I want to get my message through. Uh, if I do it very aggressively, I turn off and then the result is not, a, not what I want. So this is my challenge to evolve because clearly I don't have the best social skills because of my upbringing and jokingly maybe being in a spectrum a little bit, you know? And uh, well, I think you use that as, a, as I, I feel like you use that almost as a branding technique to make yourself more approachable because yeah. I don't think I, I don't believe any of those. La you might believe it, but I don't believe you have any any deficiencies when it comes to social yeah. interactions or presentations. You know, the plan people are talking about like, you know, and uh, I, I know what they're talking about. So kind of jokingly in a spectrum that I'm going to like, no, yes. And going to, you know, sometimes I've said something weirdly and people have many cases taken it in a wrong way. So I'm like always like. Huh. And the way I perceive myself, and they sometimes people say, I'm saying, I was nice. They was like, no, Preet. Yeah, that was not nice. I was like, oh, shit. And uh, and uh, I have a certain, like, a disconnection the way people see me. I don't mind that. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, in my deathbed, I think I get it right. But uh, the, depends, you know, my stoic upbringing, my, you know, being like in a Soviet times and everything being not socially, you know, um, so to speak, sounds very sad. I never had a lot of friends and all those things. That's why I, I enjoy club trotters and stuff and interacting with people because they help me to understand myself better. And, you know, and so if somebody listens to that and, you know, wants to in the next seminar or whatever and explain me things and, you know, <laughs> kind of, I always appreciate that because they all make me understand me better, so to speak. And it's, it's sometimes yeah. it's hard. It hurts sometimes. Like, if I said something and somebody go, Preet, you know, that actually hurt me. I was like, I, but it's, it wasn't my intention. And I, I clearly take, you know, kind of offense of it to myself that it, it was kind of, I feel bad later if I really hurt somebody. And then I have to, you know, understand this. And, but yeah, I social thing, it's, it's weird for me at least. So we, uh, as we kind of close things down, I, I really appreciate the time you 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 spent with me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. We've gone just over two hours, and the, and the time's flown by. But I want to give you all the time in the world to talk about your new endeavor, oh. defensivebjj.com. It it's it's to me, it's going the way of of uh, where instructional material in the jujitsu community should be going, which is you know this kind of on-demand platform i think the bjj i know you've you've worked with bjj fanatics and 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 you have uh, various instructionals with them but i feel like their format is unless they update it is probably getting more and more um passe and i think having what you have which is 
a platform with bite-sized pieces of information that's constantly growing is probably more conducive for student learning and getting, you know, information organized and presented in a way that's easily digestible. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about like what got you, like tell me all about it and and all the promotion and all the stuff you, the the floor is yours. Yeah. So anyway, I actually I, I want to thank you because I think uh, this was a different podcast. Uh, not all of it, but I would even say half of it. I would say you asked different questions because I I've talked about training and everything else, but I think we went a little bit uh, differently than I'm used to used to. So I think. Uh, uh, you know, if if I do a lot of podcasts, they tend to be always similar. You know, so uh, because people ask us, you know, same questions, but I really felt I I I could talk differently in that sense about stuff. Anyway, so I appreciate that. Uh, but what what the page is, I think, is the fancy BJJ. I think it is, yeah. <laughs> so it's the fancy BJ dot com. It is tatpreetchat dot com. So P R I I T. It is preetflix dot com. And that is also jitsvulcan.com, yeah? So we <laughs> we we had, we had all the domains. And because the pre-chat happened like a, you know, I think in early days even it was a little bit like a little bit negative because I did my pandas and turtles and I was annoying when I, you know, got to introduce to the club turtles and all the stuff. And so people were mentioning, ah, this is like a, some weird pre-chat, you know? But now actually it's a positive thing. And people are, you know, sending me messages and tagging me in Facebook and, oh, yeah, I should see me doing this pre-chat. And uh, because defensive maybe BJJ is a little bit more official, so there's that. Uh, we took a, I think we started to build this in July, and now it's three weeks out. I think the timing was perfect uh, because I spent a year and a half traveling around, building a you know client base, basically doing traveling around the world and getting exposed and you know testing and everything else. So clearly. And also, I, I have a reputation of knowing, you know, defensive stuff. People know me for those things. So so that helps that I'm not talking out of my ass. Again, and the people trust me that, you know, I also will add things there that are defensively solid. So I have, a you know, in that sense, reputation that I, it helps. Uh, why defensive? Because, you know, again, this is what I'm known of. And I think to have a, to have a site that I would compete with Mendes Brothers and Calvaos, would be a suicide to have an online site as an Estonian black belt. Um, so somehow in this very competitive field of uh, instruction, first of all, many people have said to me, I haven't thought about it themselves, but as an Estonian black belt, I traveled the world doing jiu-jitsu. And, uh, and, you know, I'm very demand, so to speak, that uh, many people find it very surprising that I can have a living like this, so to speak. And in jiu-jitsu, somehow, I have found a niche that basically nobody does, you know? And uh, it's super, I'm, I'm actually super happy about it because it would be like a gazillion dollar idea in that competitive field uh, that I really have my own voice and I really can separate myself from others. I know Vim is doing something similar, but he's more, you know, I think in a very good way, he's more out there. He's uh, like a... I'm, I don't know, I'm more fundamental would be bad to say, but, but I think uh, Vim definitely helps and I'm always interested of his, what he has to say, but he's doing more possibility-oriented things, I would say, in that sense, but in, not in a bad way. 
but there's I don't think there's nothing like this in in the market. And uh, I think I have a following in a good sense, not in a cult way. <laughs> I hope. And uh, uh, clearly, I can help people. And only negative things I all I'm here is mostly towards me. You know, pre talks too much or something like he's arrogant or you know. But nobody, let's say, give it a ninety nine point nine percent. People usually say good things about the stuff I do, like a technique wise. You know, turtles and pandas and stuff. So that is a good platform for pulling it off. So it's not my my personal base, but what I do. And right now, I think we have, I don't know, 70, 80, I don't know, videos there. And uh, the good thing about the site is that uh, I'm, I'm doing also narrated roles there. People can upload up to 10-minute roles. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I can I narrate them. And the ratio would be that uh, I'm not going to narrate if you upload every week. Because I'm going to narrate if you do your homework. So... If you will upload a 10-minute video, and I will probably give you a half an hour answer because I just finished it before this podcast. One guy posted five minutes, and I, he gave, I gave him back 27 minutes of narrative roles. And uh, I'm expecting that you work on that. And next time, if you upload, maybe in month, next month or after maybe in, even like once in two months, I expect I see improvements. Because if you start to overload the community, I will not do feedback because I know you're not learning from your mistakes. So because motivation is down. So this is a free service. There's no like, uh, I would have to narrow the roles. There's nothing that. I would, I'm very active in there, so to speak. And uh, again, people that do those clips and upload them, they should know that they should act, uh, do something for yourself and something for a community. So don't over load too much stuff you know because you kill a community and people will start to criticize you and weed you out so that's one of the things that i find uh, people can use and they're really surprised uh, the customer servicing usually is like oh is the preet on that site and he's narrating my roles and uh, it's 14.99 dollars and it's 12.6 euros you know and for that money i think the value is through the roof because you can see other people rolling in narrative roles. You have technique stuff. We will talk about the coaching in some point. I will have coaching sections. How to run a class. It's not, it's not there right now. Uh, so the possibilities are endless, so to speak. And it's definitely because I'm feeling so strong about coaching. It's definitely going to be, uh, you know, sections of that. How to even teach my material to, to beginners. How to run classes. So I invite uh, people to do the journey. It's enough information there already that they're already, I think, happy. And I will keep building it, building it. And I'm not going to say it's going to last 20, 30, 50 years. I couldn't predict my life three years ago. And we just, we go and I will do my part and we'll see what happens. Where, uh, where can people find you on the internet besides Defensive BJJ if they want to reach uh, out to you? Instagram is uh, Jits Vulcan. So Vulcan with a C like a Star Trek. Uh, Jits Vulcan uh, Facebook, you know, you can go Jits Vulcan also or my name, P-R-I-I-T uh, Michelson M-I-H-K-E-L-S-O-N So I'm there um, Yes, you know I have my site, uh, YouTube I haven't figured out what to do my with my YouTube I have, you know, already three and a half thousand followers there but we're going to figure it out soon that how we're going to incorporate it to my site 
and what kind of information would be free in YouTube and what would be behind paywall because I clearly want some information also to be free. I'm, I'm not being that asshole that now I can ask money and everything is now against the, you know, behind the paywall. So we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, probably, you know, fanatics where I'm, I'm not active, but, you know, I'm working with them. But uh, so these days, I guess Facebook a little bit, but because I'm doing my site, so we have some forum things in, uh, you know, building community. So I'm kind of trying to maybe funnel people to that. And because they're clearly paying for the service, so I feel also responsible giving them answers and interact there. So so I find sometimes it's not a bad thing. I, I hope, again, nobody takes it wrong. I love talking to people when they send me messages in Instagram, in, you know, in mes- Messenger. And I'm sorry also because I get them so many these days that sometimes I, you know, I don't have time to answer and then I lose the track who I'm answered to. So, and I, I don't, I don't say that I have to, if you want to talk to me, come to my site. I think it would be rude, but clearly the site isn't my priority. People are paying money there and I'm trying to manage also the interaction with messenger in, in Instagram and also on my site. And, uh, it is getting to the limit <laughs> right now. So I, I would have to work it out. And that's my problem because uh, the reach seems to be already big enough that I have to figure something out because it's actually it's really hard to handle. So are you still accepting uh, bookings for seminars? At uh, yeah. So, you know, right now is Corona time. So my <clears throat> my schedule was booked till the end of the year, you know, 26th of uh, October, I should have had a uh, month and a half long Australia and New Zealand trip, you know, yet Corona kind of ruined that. So there's always next year. So, so if someone's interested, how would they reach out and, and do that? Uh, easiest I think is, is a messenger um, through, okay. through Facebook. And uh, at the moment I know the gyms are closed and you know, they're, everybody's like surviving and stuff. So a lot of the half, I think starting from April, all my chunk April to the December is kind of postponed to the next year. So, so I know people still want to do it, but they just can't. But yeah, if you're interested, probably, you know, there's so much free information, so you can learn from there. Some people say it's even too much free information out, out there that sometimes they don't, oh, but people, people don't, you know, invite you for seminars because there's so much stuff out there already. But I actually see otherwise because people... I'm not that famous in a competition scene and people getting more known with stuff I do. I haven't, I have actually more work. So not, not, not right now, so to speak, but I had, so I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't have backfire. It hasn't backfired yet that, (coughs) sorry, being that much information out there for free. So yeah, that was a rant about that. So defensivebj.com. Uh, and no strings attached, so cancel any time, you know, monthly or annually, whatever. So super easy. But I think, uh, you know, I still think, like, I don't know, the selling point. For 12.6 euros a month, I, I think people will will be surprised of what, what they're getting. And we didn't go for a 25 and stuff. And, you know, some people have said, oh, Preet, I'm lucky that I get your privates, in, uh, you know, that, that price, what I sell my privates. That are not 250 yet, you know, 250 euros. I was like, mm-hmm. I would be shame of asking that money, but uh, but I get messages that I don't understand how famous I am yet, you know. So 
people are all, uh, you know, I think the value for people to get to that site is, uh, you know, through the roof, so to speak, that, that uh, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. I think I had uh, like a, some, some thought. So defensivebjj.com yeah. and there's a lot of other web addresses that are, that are yes. even more funny that also connected. Yes. I, I want to say this just in closing. Uh, just that time I spent in Iceland taking the first class I took with you was I had no idea who you were. What? I, uh, <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea who you were. This is my first Globetrotters camp. See? And I had shown the schedule to one of my training partners here at my gym. And I said, what classes would you like to take if you were going? Because he wasn't going. It was just me. And the one that caught his eyes was uh, how to use underhooks better hmm. when coming up, which your class was all about not using underhooks. <laughs> well, not using underhooks, but not giving underhooks yeah. and getting Darst and Marston. Yeah. And my first impression of you was I didn't know you were Estonian. I just thought this was like some, some Russian gulag uh, <laughs> wrestling instructor. And I liked the way you broke things down. It, it reminded me of how I've been coached in the past in other sports. And I appreciated, it, it seemed like you were very pragmatic and practical in terms of my first impressions. Like this is not an instructor that was going to teach you a 12 move Barambolo sequence to the back. This is an instructor that says, in the heat of battle, you're lucky if you can do two moves successively correctly against a fully resisting opponent. So what is the most direct way to achieving the result? So that was my first impression. And then, of course, you went into your no clapping. You went into some methodology talk. And I was like, okay, this guy has some interesting thoughts. And, and uh, I can understand where he's coming from. And I agree with what a lot of he's saying. So then I attended as many of the other ones that you offered there. I was actually your uke for some of the armbar, the late armbar escape, which was fun. And I just want to say, personally, as a jiu-jitsu practitioner, what you've exposed me to in terms of defensive postures, while I don't fully uh, incorporate your, you know, all the various positions, whether it's the hawking, running man, uh, a lot of my success defensively has come from some of the statements you've made and some of the concepts you've introduced to me. And the fact, not that, in my case, I think, I, you know, I really am, a, you know, loyal to my coach and I think he's phenomenal. Uh, the fact that you emphasize things the way you did made me bring them higher in importance in my mind and made me become a better grappler defensively, even if it's something as simple as don't give underhooks. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? It, it sounds silly, but so in that regard, I, I, I want to thank you for, for helping uh, me in that regard. I hope to see you on the mat at some point in the in the future. I know uh, I think a lot of people are hoping to uh, to meet up with their buddies across the world, and yeah. it's been a kind of a weird year. But uh, but Preet, thank you so much for your time. Thanks oh, no. for joining us, and uh, I really appreciate it. Me too. So thank you. All right. Awesome.